Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Wednesday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. And today we begin our spoken word, um, our spoken word format. Thank you. <laughs> our spoken word format for the nine days. Today is, of course, Rosh Chodesh Menachemov, the first of the nine, nine days. Uh, so we go into a spoken word format for our morning broadcast, and that uh, uh, and the centerpiece of our format is, of course, the brilliant lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, and, of course, RabbiWine.com. Today we uh, start with a lecture about one of the hidden heroes in our history, and that's Shimon Hatzadik. We've heard the name many, many times. Rabbi Wine will tell us all about him. Shimon Hatzadik, that is the name of the... Lecture from Rivero Wine as we start our nine days format here at JM in the AM. Tonight's uh, lecture uh, concerns itself with uh, Shimon Hatzadik, the great uh, Kohen Godel, high priest of Israel. We have uh, almost no one else in Jewish history that's called Hatzadik. There's Yosef Hatzadik. But Yosef Hatzadik does not appear uh, in the Bible as a description of him. It was added by later generations. But Shimon Atzadik is described uh, so in the Mishnah, in the beginning of Avot, uh, where he, we have the only uh, quotation of his that exists in the entire Mishnah and Talmud, though there are many stories that exist regarding him uh, that I hope I'll be able to discuss with you here tonight. So a person that has the title Shimon HaTzadik, the righteous Shimon, the just Shimon, uh, is by uh, every measure already an extraordinary person. The rabbis were not free with titles. Uh, they were not free with compliments. Uh, they didn't fool themselves, and they were not about to fool others. And therefore, we do not find the uh, free use of titles and of compliments in the Talmud. But here, uh, Shimon HaTzadik, uh, he warrants it. Now, we have uh, a great person who is shrouded in mystery. There are various opinions who he was, and there are also various opinions when he lived. As uh, most of you may know, there is a problem in Jewish history regarding dates. Uh, there seems to be 166 years missing somewhere. Because if we take, for instance, the, uh, the date that most historians agree upon, that the first temple was destroyed in 586 before the Common Era, and we have uh, that date is taken because of inscriptions that we found in Assyria and Babylonia as to Nebuchadnezzar and as to the Babylonian Empire. And then we take 70 years that the Bible tells us that the Jewish people were in exile. So that means that they returned in the year 516 before the Common Era. The only problem with that is that we know that the Second Temple was destroyed in the year 70 after the Common Era. And the Talmud tells us that the Second Temple stood for 420 years. 
So if we backdate from 70, we come back to 350 before the Common Era as the date when the temple was built to give us the 420 years. And yet if we do the other calculation, it was 516 before the Common Era. So there's 166 years that somehow doesn't jive, doesn't mix. It's hard for us to explain. And there have been various uh, theories uh, advanced. There have been uh, those who said that there really is no problem and that we're not bound to the Babylonian date. There are those that say there is no problem even if we are bound to the Babylonian date. That's not the subject of tonight's lecture. But it has importance for us because we have to somehow date Shimon HaTzadik. Now, Shimon HaTzadik, the Talmud tells us, was the man that represented the Jewish people when Alexander the Great came to the land of Israel. Alexander came in the year 333 before the Common Era. We also read that Shimon HaTzadik, Hoyo Mishiore Knesses Agdola. He was from the remnants of the Knesses Agdola. And I'll discuss that phrase with you in a moment. But the simple interpretation was that he was the last of the Anshe Knesses Agdola. And the Anshe Knesses Agdola was formed by Ezra and Nehemiah, as I discussed with you last week. Mordechai, Chagai, Scharia, Malochi. They were the founders of the Anshe Knesses Agdola, 120 great men uh, that ruled the Jewish people. Well, if the Anshe Knesset Agdola was begun in the year 516, and Shimon HaTzadik was a member of the, of the Knesset Agdola, and he saw Alexander the Great in, three, in 333, that means that he lived 200 years. And we have no, uh, no record anywhere in the Medrash and Talmud in any place about Shimon HaTzadik achieving such a, an unusual longevity. And the famous uh, old man in the Talmud is Choni Amago. And he achieved it by sleeping for 70 years. Yeah, I know rabbis who could do that to him. But aside from Choni Amago, uh, we don't have uh, people of... Uh, such extraordinary age. So therefore, that's the problem. How do we fit it together? So because of that, most of the uh, historians and most of the scholars regarding uh, uh, dating uh, these matters in the Jewish world adopt the fact that the Second Temple was begun truly uh, much later, 350, uh, was when it was completed. It may have been begun earlier. And uh, therefore, Shimon HaTzadik was uh, in his 60s or 70s when he saw Alexander the Great. And that that somehow uh, is logical to us. I'd like to only mention the idea that Reb Reuven Margolius discusses. He says that the phrase, Shiore uh, Knesset Hagdola, the survivors, uh, the survivor, the, the last one of the Knesset Agdola, does not mean that Shimon Atzadik was a member of the original Knesset Agdola. 
his theory was that the original Klesos Agdola were 120 men. And as they died off, they were never replaced until it came to 70. When there were 70 were left, those 70 then became the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of the Jewish people. The judicial, religious, halachic uh, ruling body of the Jewish people. From those 70, when they, one of them died, they were replaced. Because we always had to have 70 or 71 on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had a title. The title was Shurei Knesses Agdola. The remnant of the Knesses Agdola. That was the synonym for the word Sanhedrin. And therefore, when the Mishnah says that Shimon HaTzadik was Mishore Knesses Agdola, it doesn't mean he was a survivor of the original Anshe Knesses Agdola. It means he was a member of the 70 Sanhedrin at the time that Alexander the Great came into the country. And that's a great solution. And he has many proofs for it. The Rebbe Margolius was a very original uh, incisive thinker who uh, went his own way and wasn't afraid to uh, be creative. And anyway, that's the idea that he advances. But this is a, uh, well, what shall I say? It's always a difficult time in Jewish history. It hasn't been an easy time from the beginning. But this is an especially difficult time. Because as I mentioned to you last week when we discussed Nehemiah, the Jewish people are besieged by enemies from within and without. In the country are the Shomronim, the Samaritans, who want to drive the Jews out and who attempt at all costs to stop the building of the temple. And finally, when the temple is completed and Nehemiah triumphs over them, they continue their subversion. They never stop. And they will try and subvert the Jews when Alexander comes to the country. We'll see that in the words of the Talmud. They are persistent in their enmity to the Jewish people. And so every day there's an incident. Because they are violent people. It's not just a matter uh, that they didn't like them. But it's a matter of a long war of attrition. A war of attrition that took centuries. The Jews were in the land of Israel by the permission of the Persians. And the Jews had, uh, through Nehemiah, they had a very strong standing in the country. The Persian army uh, protected them. Uh, Nehemiah was the Pasha that the Persians sent. So the whole strength of the Jewish people in the country lay with the Persian Empire. The Persians sold them F-16s. The Persians gave him loans. The Persians vetoed all their resolutions against them. They were in by the Persians were their mainstay. Comes along Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great, in the year 360, before the Common Era, and he decides to make war against the Persians. He unites all of the Greek states under his banner. He's the king of Macedonia, but he unites Sparta and Athens and Thebes and all of the city-states that had 
uh, fought each other for years and centuries, and now he conquers them all and unites them, and he marches east and to take on the great Persian Empire. He dies before he's able to be successful. And his son, at the age of 21, his son Alexander, takes over. Alexander has as his tutor, his guide, his main advisor, the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle. And therefore, Alexander is not only a man of war, even though that's what he is famous for, but Alexander is a man of culture. Alexander is a man of Greek culture. Alexander is convinced that the rest of the world are barbarians, the rest of the world are uh, people who are ignoramuses, and it is the task of the Greeks to civilize the world, not just to conquer the world, but to civilize the world. And he's encouraged in those ideas by Aristotle, because Aristotle and the, all of the Greek philosophers were elitists, and I think that comes with being a philosopher. And uh, because of that, uh, uh, the, the poor unwashed masses, there was no hope for them unless somehow they accommodated themselves to this great new culture. And the Greeks, Alexander the Great defeats uh, Darius, the emperor of Persia, kills him. It was a long series of battles. And the Persian Empire collapses. Alexander goes all the way to Afghanistan. He goes all the way to India. He go, and then he comes back, he goes all the way to Egypt. The whole world is his. And wherever he goes, he introduces Greek culture. Now, the land of Israel is defenseless in front of him because their patron empire, which was the Persian Empire, has disappeared from the scene. It's not here. So who's going to protect them? and that the Jews themselves will wage war against Alexander, uh, that was not in the cards. They realized that they didn't stand a chance because they saw that it was obvious that Alexander had defeated the great Persian Empire. How were the Jews going to be able somehow to withstand uh, what Alexander represented? So Alexander comes to the country in 333, and he is immediately approached by the Shomronim, by the Samaritans. And they say to him, in this country you have a terrible people, a fifth column, they'll never be loyal to you. There are people that, uh, they're different than everybody else in the world. Uh, you know, you may be able to spread Greek culture, you may be able to convince all the other nations. You may be able to establish Greek civilization. But here you won't be able to do it. If you suffer these people, and if you let their temple stand, and if you let them have their holy city of Jerusalem, Alexander, they will defeat you. They will undermine you. You cannot trust them. Well, so Alexander is ready to believe them, especially as the Talmud tells us, uh, that they uh, brought gifts with them. 
uh, a little corruption always helps. And in the ancient world, uh, the crime of corruption was not a crime. Today it's also not a crime, but it's not supposed to be publicized. But in the ancient world, it could even be publicized. And in fact, uh, uh, bringing gifts and, uh, to the emperor, to the new conqueror, was uh, part of the culture. Alexander, uh, where did the Shomroni meet him? They met him in what is today called Kfar Saba, which had a Greek name to it, and uh, the Jews called it Kfar Saba. So you all thought that Kfar Saba is a modern Hebrew name, named after somebody's grandfather. So maybe it was, but the grandfather was around 2,400 years ago. In any event, the Jews come now to greet Alexander. They know they can't ignore him. And they know if they, don't, if they wait for him, uh, their situation will be far worse because he's absorbed the poison of the Samaritans. He's absorbed their gifts. His mind is made up against them. So they come to meet him. The Talmud says they came with torches of light in their hands. And Shimon Atzadik is the one that led the procession. Shimon Atzadik at that time was the Kohen Gadol. He was the high priest. So he came dressed in the vestments of the high priest, in the Shmon of Godim, in the eight garments. Uh, the whole discussion in Tosvis, uh, whether or not the high priest could wear his garments even when he was not serving in the temple, uh, whether he could, uh, you know, uh, like, just walk around with them uh, if he wanted to. But in any event, he is dressed as the high priest, and he comes to see Alexander the Great. Alexander sees him and dismounts from his famous horse. Alexander had a famous horse that, was, uh, that no one could tame, uh, and he was the only one who could ride him, and he was supposed to be the tallest horse in the world. The horse had a name, but I forgot it. But the uh, Alexander dismounts when he sees Shimon Atzadik, and his uh, soldiers say to him, "Melech Godol Komocha Yishtachaveli Yehudi Zeh, a great king like you, the emperor of the world, you get off your horse and you bow in obeisance to this Jew." Omar Lahem. So he said to them. This is very interesting because we'll discuss it in terms of Christianity in a moment. Whenever I go to war, he said, I have a vision of someone that leads me, who is my inspiration in war. And now I see this person in the flesh. The vision that I saw... The face that I saw that led me to victory is the face of Shimon Atzadik. It's interesting that in all of Christian literature, for instance, uh, Constantine, uh, who converts to Christianity, it's always the same story over again, that before the war, there's a vision. And the vision is always a Christian vision, and because of that vision, they triumph. So we find, I've mentioned to you many, many times, that there's no originality in the New Testament. That's why it wasn't written by Jews. 
the Jews would have made up a new story. So that all of the miracles in the New Testament are reruns of old miracles. They're all the same miracles that appear in the book of Kings, uh, Elio, Elisha, all the same types of miracles. There are no new miracles. And this idea of the vision is also not a new idea because the uh, story of the vision with Alexander the Great and with Shimon Atzadik uh, is uh, 350, 400 years before Christianity ever exists. So again, it's a, uh, it's a method of borrowing a well-known story. See, that's the advantage. Everybody knows the story. Everybody knows there's a miracle. For instance, the miracle that you can feed uh, a multitude of people with 20 loaves, you know, and 10 pounds of fish. Well, that's not such a miracle because Ur Sameach does it every day, but that's probably do all the other yeshivas. But uh, the, uh, that miracle, that's a well-known miracle because Elisha did the miracle. So the miracle is baked into the minds of the people for a thousand years already that that's a miracle and that it can be done. So then you come and say, you know, Jesus did it, so that's a miracle. Because it's an accepted miracle already. Uh, curing a person of leprosy. So we find that in the Tanakh, the story of Naaman, who was cured from leprosy. So he's cured from leprosy. Raising someone from the dead. We find that in the Tanakh. Elio was Machai Mesim once. Elisha was Machai Mesim twice. So those are all accepted miracles already. So when you hook on to an accepted miracle, you're halfway there already. Because the people don't have any doubt that that can happen because it happened already. So the same thing is this idea of a vision. A vision before you go into battle. And in the vision, you see an angel that leads you. So that's an old story. And that story was well known in the ancient world because the Jews spread the story. And that helped to explain why Alexander the Great did not destroy the temple and why he did not destroy Jerusalem and why he let the Jews maintain an autonomous government under conditions and terms that he did not extend to other nations. Why was he in so much in favor of the Jews? The answer is because of this uh, supernatural uh, event. Not only does he not destroy the temple, he turns against the Samaritans, against the Kusim, the Shomronim, and he says, how dare you speak against such a holy man as Shimon Atzadik? And therefore, he gives the Jews the right of control in the country, and the Kusim, the Shomronim, are brought low. So this story of Shimon Atzadik uh, is enough to make Shimon Atzadik the great hero because of the fact that he saved the Jewish people from what have otherwise would have been a national destruction at the hands of Alexander the Great. But the rabbis saw in it something deeper. The story is the story. The rabbis saw in it something deeper. The rabbis were aware that the great struggle in the time of the Second Temple was not only a national struggle whether or not a Jewish state could be maintained and whether the Temple could be maintained and whether or not Jerusalem could be maintained, important as that was 
and important as it is. But the rabbi said that there is a greater struggle. And unless the greater struggle is won, winning this other struggle will not serve, the Jewish people will not survive. And that struggle was between Greek culture and between the values of the Torah of the Jewish people. That was the struggle. That was the struggle of the Hashmanoim after Yishimun Atzadik. That was the struggle of the Tzdokim and the Prushim. Uh, that was the struggle against Rome because Rome absorbed Greece. And that's been the struggle of the Jewish people throughout the ages. It's not just a struggle for physical survival, though that must happen, right? Because if there are, God forbid, no Jews, there's no Judaism either. You need people. Something that uh, some of the wisest of us forget at times. You need people. But once you have the people, you also need the value system. You need you need the ability somehow to remain uh, alone, lonesome, different in a world of uh, majority religions that stand against you, majority cultures that stand against you. I mean, we have the problem. We live in a world that there's a billion Muslims in the world and there are a billion Christians in the world and there are uh, a billion Hindus in the world, and there are a billion Shintoists and Confucianists, etc., in the world. Yeah, so where are we? And uh, ignoring religion, uh, just taking a look at the social values that exist. So in a world, you know, where uh, uh, sexual infidelity is no longer frowned upon in a world of promiscuity, so, you know, and you're going to talk about how long the sleeves should be on the dress, so then you're nuts, right? You're way out of step. What are you talking about? So that's the struggle. And that's a struggle that always finds uh, casualties amongst the Jewish people. Uh, there are always Jews that fall off, uh, that, so to speak, bet on the wrong horse. So in our time, there were those who bet on communism and those that bet on socialism and those that bet, you know, on secularism and those that bet on all sorts of things, right, that were all popular. They were all the wave of the future. It was definitely going to happen, and the old Jew was going to disappear. It didn't work out that way. It never works out that way. Somehow the old Jew is always here. The new Jew never makes it. So Alexander the Great, the rabbi saw in his bowing to Shimon HaTzadik. So again, you know, you know the, uh, the stories in the Talmud have to be understood on many, many different levels. The rabbis were master storytellers. So there are people whom the story alone is enough. You know, yeah, that's the story. The story happens, it's a good story. You know, we'll put it in the movie and it's fine. But it has to be understood on a different level also. That Alexander the Great dismounting and bowing before Shimon HaTzadik is a statement of the Jewish people and of the rabbis of the Talmud that eventually Greek culture will bow. 
eventually it will be discarded. And eventually it's the culture of Shimon HaTzadik that will prevail. And that's the message that the rabbis wanted to send. They wanted us to realize that. In the great words of the poem of Rabbi Yudah Alevi about Chochmas Yavonis, about Greek culture, so he says, I share Kulo Perach, it is all flowers, Uperiain law, but no fruit. And uh, the world has proven that, that uh, it is all flowers and no fruit. So this is one story of Shimon HaTzadik that we read. Now, Shimon HaTzadik is at a time the Jewish people have to be rebuilt. How do you rebuild it? They went through this tremendous national trauma. The temple is, was destroyed. They were exiled. They went to Babylonia. Then the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. Then they're blindsided by Homan and the story of Purim. They're almost completely annihilated. The first genocide against the Jews. And then somehow they escape from that miraculously. And they come back home. And they come back home, come back to the land of Israel in enormous disarray. Most of the Jews don't come back. Most of the Jews stay in Egypt and in Babylonia where they're more comfortable. And Ezra and Nehemiah, again, as I discussed last week, have a, an enormous task to try and somehow rebuild the Jewish people. Now, the stores are open on the Shabbat in Jerusalem. The, uh, the people are uh, intermarried with non-Jews. Uh, the Jew, many, many Jews have non-Jewish grandchildren already. It's all destroyed. And as I pointed out to you last week in the discussion on Nehemiah, how he and Ezra were able to turn the situation around and to gain momentum on behalf of observance of Torah and an observance of what the Jewish values were. So Shimon HaTzadik, in the only quotation that we have from him in the Mishnah and in the Talmud, you would think that Shimon HaTzadik, we would have so much more from him. But what he said was the whole thing. The world stands, the Jewish world. And if the, the Jewish world is also the general world. It stands on three things. And that was, so again, if I'm going to interpret it for you in a number of ways, because all of them are expressive of what Shimon HaTzadik tried to do here. Allah Torah, on the study of Torah. So you have competing groups within the Jewish people at the time of Shimon HaTzadik, just as you have competing groups today within the Jewish people. So they're the Torah people. They're learning. They're studying. They're teaching. They're writing. They're engaged in the intellectual pursuit of Torah. But they've got nothing to do with the rest of the, of, uh, the Jewish people. They're, so to speak, locked up in their own world. And they're dealing in their own world. Then you have a group who are the Kohanim, Avoda, the temple service. So you have to realize that at the time of the first Beis Amigdash, there were no synagogues. 
There was no other service except the service in the base of Migdash. There was no order of prayer. So everything were, was centralized around the Kohanim. Everything was centralized about the Avoda in the base of Migdash. When they went into exile, so the rabbis began to create the great invention which has allowed us to survive, uh, the substitute temple. The substitute temple is prayer, it's the synagogue, it's the order of service. Now they come back there at Israel and they rebuild the temple. So the Kohanim want to reassert their monopoly, especially because of the fact that the Kohanim made a living from it. Rabbi Magolia says here a tremendous insight regarding the first temple. How did the Jews worship? What kind of Jews were they in the time of the first temple? We read in the in the uh, in the Tanakh and Sefer Malachim, everybody's worshiping idols. And we read that even the righteous kings, it says, Raka Bomos Lohusoru. The Bomos, they could never get rid of the Bomos. What was the Boma? The Boma was everybody's private altar in his backyard. So many of the Boma originally, again, we have to start because there's a history here. What, what happened before there was a temple? So before there was a temple, so the Bomos were permitted. Everybody could have his own private uh, altar and bring sacrifices, and that was his method of serving, of the, of the service of the Lord. When the Beis Hamikdash was built, so then all the bomos were canceled. The time of the heter abomos was removed. The only thing is that something that's ingrained within the people for hundreds of years, if somebody, you know, so who cares what the rabbi says, right? What does he know? I'm going to do what my grandfather did. Every road has stories like that, right? Of people that uh, the rabbi tries to tell them what the correct halach is, and he tells them, I'm doing what my grandfather did, and don't tell them, don't confuse me with the law. Right? I'm doing what, we always did it this way. So they always did it with bumos. And therefore, they could never really uproot the Bomos from the people. But what happened was, because you're living again in a majority culture of paganism, you're living in a culture where the whole world is worshipping many gods, so eventually this service in the Bomos deteriorated. It deteriorated to the fact that Jews worshipped on their own private Bomos the same way that the non-Jews worshipped on their private bomos. So everybody had his favorite god, everybody had his favorite patron saint, everybody had his own spirit that he, well, you know, so there was a goddess, uh, so somebody that needed children, so you, it was the god of fertility, and someone that needed money was the god of money, otherwise known as Goldman Sachs, and, the, and then there was, everybody had their own gods. But they were all Shomer Shabbos. 
They all ate kosher. They all put on film. Except that they were pagans. And that was what the prophets railed against. That's what they complained about. That's why the prophet Elio can say that out of all of Israel, there only were 7,000 people out of all of the Jewish people, out of all of the millions that did not bow down to the Baal, he says. Shiva Salofim Birkayim Asher Lokoru also. There were 7,000 that didn't bow down and didn't kiss it. There only were 7,000 Shomer Shabbos? What are you talking about? They were all Shomer Shabbos. They all ate kosher. But they all kissed the Baal. Because that was the problem with the centrality of worship based upon sacrifices and based upon the temple. So, for instance, the northern kingdom... So Yeroven ben Nevot said, why should, the te- why should the temple be in Jerusalem? I'll make a temple, I'll make one in Basel, I'll make one in Don, you know, just as good. Now comes the second temple. Shimon Atzadik is aware of that historic problem and aware that it can degenerate again. And he's aware that there's a group, the Kohanim, that live al Avodah. But he places Avoda second. He says, if Torah will be first, then Avoda will be fine. If Avoda is first, then we're in trouble. And finally, the social situation. In the first temple, at the end of the first temple, uh, the rich exploited the poor, something awful. We read in the Novi Yirmiya that uh, there were Jews that enslaved other Jews, literally took them as slaves, would not free them. And then when they did free them, they took them back again, coerced them back. We see a society where if a debtor could not pay his or her debt, their children were taken as slaves. The story of the uh, the widow of the prophet Ovadia with the Novi Elisha. She comes to him and she says to him, I owe him money. I don't have the money to pay. He's coming. He's going to take my two sons as slaves. That's in a Jewish society. That's Vahavta Lareach That's Sedek, Sedek, Tirdof. And the rabbis say that in the entire time of the first temple, the Jews did not observe the Shemitah because economically it didn't pay for him. That's why they went 70 years into exile because it was 70 Shemitahs that they didn't observe. So he said, The world stands, Torah is not enough. A three-legged chair if it only has two legs, and I can testify, having sat once in a while on them, if it only has two legs, will collapse. Even if the two legs are Torah and Avodah. The third leg has to be present. Gmilas Chasodim. But again, there's an order. There are Jews that are Gmilas Chasodim Jews, right? Charitable, right? 
But they're not Torah Jews. And they're not Avodah Jews. And what happens to the Gemilas Chasodim Jew is that eventually his family, etc., it evaporates. I've seen so many times, uh, so many times, at least five times in my rabbinic career where grandchildren uh, went to court uh, to have their grandfather declared incompetent because he was giving his money to charity. It was the grandfather's money, but by the grandchildren, it was their money already. And they were afraid uh, that, uh, you know, that God forbid he'd give it all away before he died. So they went to court, and they had a conservator appointed by the court, and they took away... I remember a wonderful Jew. I mean, I, my heart breaks every time I remember the story. He said, Rebbe, I can't sign a check. They took the signature away from me. And he was not insane. He was a good Jew. He was a Gmilas Chasodim Jew. But if you don't have Torah and Avodah, so the Gmilas Chasodim Jew also disappears. Ask the uh, United Jewish Appeal. They'll tell you. The uh, percentage of givers amongst the Jewish community in the United States has shrunk greatly. Because if you have intermarriage and everybody's eating non-kosher and there's no Shabbos and there's no Torah... So then there's no United Jewish Appeal either. Why should there be? Where should it come from? So Shimon Atzadik laid down the blueprint, not just for the second temple, but he laid down the blueprint for all Jewish life thereafter. The world stands on three things. It stands on Torah and Torah first. Because Torah defines for us Avoda and Gemilas Chasodim as well. If a person's a Torah Jew, so then the values of Avoda, of serving God, which in our time is prayer and uh, the performance of mitzvot, is defined by the Torah. Because otherwise, everybody's doing their own thing, right? Everybody rewrites the Haggadah, everybody, you know, it's like everybody's doing their own thing. But there's nothing as obsolete as something that is currently politically correct. Tomorrow it's useless. And it carries no meaning. So Torah first, then there has to be Avodah, and then there's Gemilas Chasodim. You need all three, but there's a priority, there's an order. And Shimonat Sadik, you'll notice in Pirkei Ovos, He's the only one, he doesn't have any compatriots. There are no Zugos, there are no pairs. He was everything. He was the Kohen Godel. He was the head of the Sanhedrin. He was the man to represent them against the Greeks. He was the person in the Jewish world. We never were able to produce such a person since. That's why he's the only one who's called by that name. Everybody else, we, when he died, we had to split up the tasks which is always the truth when a great person departs. A great person is able to do many things, and he's able to be many different personalities to many different people. 
but when he's gone, so then uh, he's not there anymore. So then you have to divide up the tasks. When Rabbeinu HaKadosh, when Rebbe died, so he had to divide up amongst his sons. You'll be the Rosh Hashiva, you'll be the head of the Sanhedrin, you'll take care of the Jewish people. He couldn't find one that could do all of it, even though Rebbe could do all of it. Shimon HaTzadik also, he was everything. He was Torah and he was Avodah. He was able to control the Kohanim. He was able to run the temple service. He was able to root out corruption. He was able to make it holy. The Chazal say that after Shimon HaTzadik, Nimnu Echov HaKohanim Melavorech B'Shem HaMaforosh, the Gemorrah in Yoma. That as long as Shimon HaTzadik was alive, when the Kohanim blessed the people, they, sp- they pronounced God's name the way it was written. They said it with Shemam Forosh. When Shimon HaTzadik died, they could no longer do it. So what again, what's the interpretation of that? What's the difference if Shimon HaTzadik is here or not? Because as long as Shimon HaTzadik was alive, there was a unity. It wasn't divided into different groups and different categories. He was the Torah man. He was the Avodah man, he was the Gemilas Chassodi man. When there's unity, so God's name is present. After his death, it split up. And then there was the Torah camp, and then the Kohanim were their own camp, and the Gemilas for the social people were their own camp. They couldn't say the name of God anymore. That, that was taken away from them. It no longer was present. When Shimon HaTzadik was alive, the Gemara says there were seven miracles. The Gemara says that he was a Kohen Gadol for 40 years. That whenever uh, on Yom Kippur, when they picked the lot, which uh, goat was going to go La Hashem and which one was La Zozel, so the Kohen put both hands into the box, into the kalfi, and he took out the two golden cubes. And on one of them it said La Hashem, and the other it said La Zozel. As long as Shimon HaTzadik was alive, the right hand always picked up the one that said La Hashem. It always happened that he picked up the one that said La Hashem with the right hand. So again, what is that symbolic? That the right hand is a symbol of strength. It's the symbol of creativity of a person doing something. So, but as long as Shimon HaTzadik was alive, the Jewish people were La Hashem. It always came up on the right hand. They had a red string that hung in the temple. And that was around the neck of the goat that went La Zoza. That red string always turned white on Yom Kippur. In fulfillment of the Posukim, Yu Chatoechem Kashonim Kasheleg Yalbinu. If your sins are as scarlet as this thread, they will turn white. It will be like the driven snow. So that was a sign that the Lord forgave the Jewish people. After him it didn't happen. After a while they stopped hanging the bed. The Gemara says they no longer hung the string. Because since the string didn't turn white, it stayed red. So the people were depressed. So, you know, the solution is don't hang the string, right? One would think the solution is correct yourself in such a way so that the string will start turning white again, right? 
That's too hard. The easy way is don't hang the string anymore. Because then the people will get depressed. The westernmost candle burned eternally in the menorah. So that the Nermarovi is always the symbol again of holiness amongst the Jewish people. The Gemara says that uh, the Lechem Aponim, there were 12 loaves of bread that were divided every Shabbos among the Kohanim that worked that week. So sometimes, let's say a week of the holidays, there were a lot of Kohanim. You got 12 loaves of bread, so how much can you get? Right? Everybody got a crumb. But as long as Shimon Atzadik was alive, everybody was full. The crumbs satiated them. Nobody ever said, I didn't get enough. So again, that's a mental attitude, right? That's, that's the idea of wealth, of satisfaction. I got the crumb, that's enough. I got a holy crumb, I'm full. So he was able to inspire in people that sense, that sense of holiness. Therefore, the Mephoshim say that that's one of the reasons he's called Shimon Atzadik is because he was Mazdik everybody else. We think Atzadik is for himself. Atzadik is someone that makes others better. That's the measure. So in Yiddish they used to say Atzadik and pelts. If you're Atzadik for yourself, so you're wrapped in your own fur coat, right? The rest of the people are freezing. But you're wrapped in a fur coat, you're warm. The real tzaddik lights a fire. He turns on the furnace so everyone is warm. And the people are able to imitate him. He's a source of inspiration to others. That's Shimon Atzadik. After Shimon Atzadik died, the Gemara says, Nishtalcho Meira. It was like a curse, right? So we find already Kohanim fighting with each other. We find Kohanim coming to blows in the base of Migdish. We find that the Kohanim deserted and became the leaders of the Tzdokim, of those that were not faithful anymore to Torah. And we find a whole different change in the climate and the atmosphere. And that was because of the fact that Shimonat Sadiq was not present anymore. The Gemara says a famous story about Shimon Atzadik. The Talmud uh, basically is opposed to the Zerus, to becoming a Nazir, to, uh, to undertaking uh, further prohibitions more than what the Torah has already prescribed for us. The Gemara phrases it, Lodaya Masha Osra Torah, it's not enough. Right? The 365 laven aren't enough. You gotta, you know, you gotta add to it. So there's a trend, you know, there's a trend in the Jewish world, you know, towards that type of asceticism, you know, that the 365 aren't enough. We gotta make more. So the Gemara says that Shimonat Sadik never ate from the sacrifice of a Nazir. A Nazir, when he was done, uh, when he fulfilled his vows of uh, his Nazarite vows, so then he brought a, a sacrifice in the temple, and the Kohanim were entitled to eat from the meat of that sacrifice. He never ate as a symbol of his disapproval, that he disapproved of the entire concept that a person should become a Nazir. 
But the Talmud tells us that there was one exception. Roeh Hoyisi Beiri. He met a Nazir, and he uh, upbraided him for being a Nazir. Complained, said to him, "Why'd you become a Nazir?" So the so he told him, "Roeh Hoyisi Beiri, I was a shepherd in my town, Ubosi Lamalos Minanohar Mayim, and I took my sheep down to the water hole, to the uh, pond that they should drink." And I saw the ref- my reflection. And my Yitzhah came upon me and said, Look how handsome you are. You can have any woman in the world that you want. And he wanted to take me out of the world, right? For At that instant, I was ready to change my life. I'm going to go to the disco tonight. Go to the bar. Omarti Liitsris, I said to my Yetzirah, Rosha, you evil one, don't you know? Listen to what he said. Don't you know? The end is that I'll be dust. The insects will eat you, will eat the beauty. And therefore I took a pledge that I will be a nausea. So Shimon Atzadik said, Tomachti Rosho, I lifted up his head, Venoshakti Val Rosho, and I kissed him, Venamti Lo, and I said to him, Bni, my son, Kamoscha Yirbun, the Israel. May there be many more like you in Israel. So Shimon Atzadik lives at a time of Greek culture. He lives in, by the Greeks, this was all, this was regular life. Homosexuality, pedestry, you name it. Everything that you see today in the name of modernity is not modern. It, it's old stuff. They're also not machadish anything. They also haven't created anything new. Socrates says the greatest love in the world is a man for a man. So that's today's fad. It's a fad, you know. You want to say that you're part of the new world, so that's what you say. Whether you are or you aren't, doesn't make a difference. On the college campuses, I am told uh, that the two largest Jewish groups on college campuses are the Orthodox and the homosexuals. Because that's the statement today. That's the anti-establishment statement. Just as the 1960s, the anti-establishment statement was free love. And just as in the 1930s, it was communism. There are statements, right? That's the fad. That's how you define yourself today. So Shimon Atzadik realizes what world he lives in. He sees it around them. He sees all the Greeks. He sees what it'll do to the Jewish people, that they'll also be overwhelmed with such a culture. JM in the AM, we will wrap up the um, the presentation of Rabbi Wine about Shimon HaTzadik coming up after the news. This is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard a listener's sponsored digital radio. 
Round the world of web and AlchemySingle.com on the AlchemySingle Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Golly, it's on the background to our news from Israel coming up. Everybody Wines Lectures is the centerpiece to our spoken word format here during the nine days at JM and the AM. Today is Rosh Chodesh Av, Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av, all the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh, including Yalav Yavo, Half Hallel, special Torah reading, Musaf Baruch Inafshin, whatever your custom calls for. It is Rosh Chodesh morning here at JM and the AM. Our nine days format on JMM continues through Tisha B'Av next Thursday. Galaitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast is next. We say Boker Tov from JMM. Galaitzal, Mirushalayim, Asha Ashtayim, Shalom Rav, Baulpan Rani Avnai, Imashikorechshav. השר במשרד המשפטים דוד אמסלם במתקפה חריפה ליועצת המשפטית לממשלה גלי בערב מיירה. היא האדם המסוכן ביותר במדינה. היינו צריכים להזיז אותה מהתפקיד כבר אתמול. היא לטעמי הבן אדם הכי מסוכן היום במדינת ישראל. יש מרד הלכה למעשה היום בצהל. ומי זה? היועצת המשפטית עושה פנים ורולים ולא רואה כלום. לא רואה, לא שומעת. עד שלא נזיז אותה משם, ואנחנו צריכים להזיז אותה כבר אתמול, זה נזק ביטחוני בכלל ליציבותה. הגברת הזאת היא לטעמי מהווה היום סכנה ממשית ליציבותה של מדינת ישראל דמוקרטית. וחבר הכנסת גדעון סער מהמחנה הממלכתי הגיב על הדברים ואמר, השר במשרד המשפטים בנאום גלו את התוכנית להדחת היועצת המשפטית לממשלה. הסכנה למדינה היא הממשלה הקיצונית, לא היועצת המשפטית שלה. מדבריהם הביא כתב התחום הפוליטי שחר גליק. טקס חילופי המפקדים במחוז תל אביב, המפקד היוצא ניצב עמי אשד, שסיים הבוקר רשמית את תפקידו, אומר, עלינו לשרת את הציבור ולהגן על הדמוקרטיה. אין לנו משטרה אחרת, וגם אין לנו דמוקרטיה אחרת. אסור לוותר, לא על זו ולא על זו. ולא פחות חשוב, יש לתת להם להמשיך לשמור אחד על השנייה, לשרת את הציבור ולהגן על ערכי הדמוקרטיה, על ערכי משטרת ישראל, על המוסר ועל הצדק. והשר לביטחון לאומי בן גביר השיב לאשת בנאומו ואמר, בתל אביב נדרשים שוטרים שלא מפלים בין ימין לשמאל. נדרשים שוטרים מיומנים, מנוסים. שוטרים שלא מפלים בין דם לדם, בין ימין לשמאל. שוטרים שנותנים יחס הגון וראוי לכולם. כתבתנו בתל אביב אנה פינס מוסרת שאת אשד יחליף מפקד מחוז הדרום, ניצב פרץ אמר. ראש המל"ל צחי הנגבי מכחיש את הדברים שצוטטו הבוקר בניו יורק טיימס במאמרו של תומאס פרידמן על כך שהנשיא ביידן העביר בשיחתו עם ראש הממשלה נתניהו מסר שיש לעצור את החקיקה המשפטית. הודעתו של הנגבי נכתב, הדברים המיוחסים לנשיא במאמר כלל לא נאמרו בשיחה. ראש הממשלה עדכן את הנשיא כי בשבוע הקרוב תשלים הכנסת את החקיקה הנוכחית. מנגד שגריר ישראל בארצות הברית לשעבר דני איילון העריך אצל אמיר איבגי בארצות הברית ניסו לחדד את המסרים לישראל. מה שהאמריקאים עשו, אחרי שהם העבירו את המסרים והם uh, חושבים שהם לא נקלטו, אז מסבירים כדי שיבינו. ואז שולחים את זה דרך התקשורת. אני בטוח שגם הנשיא הרצוג שמע את זה מאחורי דלתיים סגורות בשיחה האישית שלו עם הנשיא ביידן. האמריקאים, קשה להם מאוד. אני לא חושב שהם ייתנו לרפורמה הזאת לעבור בלי שזה ישליך על היחסים עם ישראל. ומזג האוויר החום לא יעזוב אותנו לפחות עד אמצע השבוע הבא. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ולד. JM in the AM, we're in our nine days format. We're live from our New Jersey studio here on a Wednesday. And um, uh, we've started 
um, this morning with uh, the discussion by Rabbi Barawine about Shimon Hatzadeh coming up uh, this hour. Uh, once this lecture ends, we will go to uh, his examination, Rabbi Wine's examination of the Six-Day War, uh, which would be very, very interesting. On this very first day of Menachem Av, today is Rosh Chodesh, Yalaviyavo, half Hallel, special Torah reading, Musaf Barachinavshi, all the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh, even on a Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. Uh, the conclusion of Rabbi Barawine's lecture on Shimon HaTzadik here at JM in the AM. That's the measure. So in Yiddish they used to say, atzadik and pelts. If you're atzadik for yourself, so you're wrapped in your own fur coat, right? The rest of the people are freezing. But you're wrapped in a fur coat, you're warm. The real tzadik lights a fire. He turns on the furnace so everyone is warm. And the people are able to imitate him. He's a source of inspiration to others. That's Shimon atzadik. After Shimon HaTzadik died, the Gemara says, Nishtalcho Meira. There was like a curse, right? So we find already Kohanim fighting with each other. We find Kohanim coming to blows in the base of Migdish. We find that the Kohanim deserted and became the leaders of the Tzdokim, of those that were not faithful anymore to Torah. And we find a whole different change in the climate and the atmosphere. And that was because of the fact that Shimon Atzadik was not present anymore. The Gemara says a famous story about Shimon Atzadik. The Talmud uh, basically is opposed to the Zerus, to becoming a Nazir, to, uh, to undertaking... Uh, further prohibitions more than what the Torah has already prescribed for us. The more phrases it, Lodaya, Masha, Osra, Torah, it's not enough. Right? The 365 Lavin aren't enough. You gotta make, you know, you gotta add to it. So there's a trend, you know, there's a trend in the Jewish world, uh, you know, towards that type of asceticism, you know, that the 365 aren't enough. We gotta make more. So the Gemara says that Shimon HaTzadik never ate from the sacrifice of a Nazir. A Nazir, when he was done, uh, when he fulfilled his vows, of uh, his Nazarite vows, so then he brought a, a sacrifice in the temple, and the Kohanim were entitled to eat from the meat of that sacrifice. He never ate as a symbol of his disapproval that he disapproved of the entire concept that a person should become a Nazir. But the Talmud tells us that there was one exception. Roe Hoyisibiri, he met a Nazir, and he uh, upbraided him for being a Nazir, complained, said to him, why'd you become a Nazir? So, so he told him, Roe Hoyisibiri, I was a shepherd in my town, and I took my sheep down to the water hole, to the uh, pond that they should drink. And I saw the ref my reflection. And my Yitzhah came upon me and said, Look how handsome you are. You can have any woman in the world that you want. 
And he wanted to take me out of the world, right? For at that instant, I was ready to change my life. I'm going to go to the disco tonight. I'll go to the bar. Omarti Liitsris, I said to my Yetzirah, Rosha, you evil one, don't you know? Listen to what he said. Don't you know? The end is that I'll be dust. The insects will eat you, will eat the beauty. And therefore I took a pledge that I will be a Nazir. So Shimon Atzadik said, Tomachti Rosho, I lifted up his head, Venoshakti Val Rosho, and I kissed him. Venamtilo, and I said to him, Bni, my son, Kamoscha Yirbun, be Israel. May there be many more like you in Israel. So Shimon Atzadik lives in a time of Greek culture. He lives in by the Greeks. This was all, this was regular life. Homosexuality, pedestry, you name it. Everything that you see today in the name of modernity is not modern. It's old stuff. They're also not machadish anything. They also haven't created anything new. Socrates said the greatest love in the world is a man for a man. So that's today's fad. It's a fad, you know. You want to say that you're part of the new world, so that's what you say. Whether you are or you aren't, doesn't make a difference. On the college campuses, I am told uh, that the two largest Jewish groups on college campuses are the Orthodox and the homosexuals. Because that's the statement today. That's the anti-establishment statement. Just as the 1960s, the anti-establishment statement was free love. And just as in the 1930s, it was communism. There are statements, right? That's the fad. That's how you define yourself today. So Shimon Atzadik realizes what world he lives in. He sees it around him. He sees all the Greeks. He sees what it'll do to the Jewish people. That they'll also be overwhelmed with such a culture. They'll look in the mirror and they'll say, I'm going to the bar tonight. So then he said, now I understand why the Torah allowed one to be a Nazir. Why you should stand up and say, not me. And if necessary, as the Rambam states, if it's bent to one side, then you've got to bend it all the way to the other side in order somehow for it to come out in the middle. If the whole world is bent to one side, then we have to bend to the other side. So in all the stories of Shimon Atzadik that we have in the Talmud, and all the records that we have about him, we have this constant uh, theme of how to create a Jewish people that will be able to survive the foreign culture, that will be able to survive the value system of the majority of society, which stands against everything Jewish, and how within the Jewish people to set up the system of priorities, the Torah, Avodah, Gemilas Chasodim, 
upon which the world stands. And that's Shimon Atzadik's great legacy to the Jewish people until today. Shimon Atzadik is buried here in Jerusalem. Near Sanhedria is the famous grave of Shimon Atzadik. Jews uh, visited until today. And it's a grave that was preserved, one of the few graves that's preserved for such a long period of time, identified always as the grave of Shimon Atzadik. And the impression that he made on the Jewish world and the legacy that he has left us until today. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. For information, please contact the Destiny Foundation at 1-800-499-WINE. Yes, uh, information about Rabbi Wine's lecture is 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Off to a good start in our uh, nine days uh, format here at JMNAM. Rabbi Wine's lecture on Shimon Sadik is available. At the, at the website, RabbiWine.com, and uh, through the phone at 1-800-499-WEIN. Uh, we're now going to go to the Six-Day War, Rabbi Wine's perspective on the Six-Day War of 1967. Uh, this is from his lecture series entitled History Series 3. Again, History Series 3, a uh, lecture on the Six-Day War. The series does include lectures about the founding of the State of Israel and a lot of modern-day Israel. Rabbi Beryl Wine and the subject of the Six-Day War here on a Wednesday Rosh Chodesh morning at JM in the AM. This, the 84th tape in the series, is entitled The Six-Day War, delivered May 19, 1987. We hope you enjoy. Probably the most uh, dramatic event in recent Jewish history, certainly uh, uh, ranking as uh, one of the most emotional experiences that the Jewish people have had has been the uh, battle of the Six-Day War. The backdrop to the event uh, is complicated, but the basic backdrop of the event was that Nasser, in his attempt to unify the Arabs, in his attempt to uh, achieve his goal of pan-Arabism under his domination and under the domination of Egypt, ran into many great problems, most of them with the Arabs, who were not willing to be his uh, client subjects. He was engaged in a uh, bitter uh, civil war in Yemen, in which the Saudi Arabian royalists uh, supported uh, the uh, royalists in Yemen against uh, Nasser and the Soviet-backed insurgents. And it was a quicksand. It was a morass. Uh, over 50,000 Egyptian troops were involved. It was, as we have unfortunately come to learn, another example of a larger power getting involved in a uh, war that they could not win. It's much the effect that the United States had in Vietnam and that uh, the Soviet Union is having in Afghanistan. The larger power on paper certainly should be able to win and prevail very easily, but it doesn't turn out that way. And uh, Nasser had a uh, faltering economy. He, was, uh, he had bankrupted Egypt. He had mortgaged the entire Egyptian cotton crop to Russia to pay for armaments. He was badly overextended. He was in a war in Yemen that he couldn't win. 
and he sought, therefore, a shortcut that would allow him to achieve all of his goals in one fell swoop. And that shortcut naturally had to do with the state of Israel, namely with the destruction of the state of Israel. If he could mount a victory over the Jews, then he would certainly become the hero of the Arab world, the leader of the Arab world. He is... Uh, his lifelong ambition of domination could be achieved. Now, Nasser had many enemies in the Arab world, foremost of whom was King Hussein of Jordan. Uh, they called each other the most vile names imaginable, but in the history of the world, calling each other names doesn't necessarily uh, prevent, uh, certainly in the Arab world, it doesn't prevent the, uh, the brotherly embrace and the kiss of alliance. He also uh, was not on very good terms with Syria. Syria had at one time in the early 1960s been a part of Egypt in, a, uh, in an impossible marriage called the United Arab Republic. And uh, Syria had broken away finally from Nasser's embrace. And the military government that was installed in Syria was not anxious to do Nasser's bidding. Nevertheless, Nasser was the consummate uh, politician, uh, diplomat, wheeler-dealer, and he, uh, as early as 1965, had in mind that he was going to somehow deal a death blow to the state of Israel, which would uh, forever immortalize him in the Arab world and temporarily at least give him domination over the Arab world. It would eclipse the Saudis. It would give him a chance. Egypt is a country with a lot of, a lot of people and little resources, and Saudi Arabia is a country with little people and a lot of resources. You know, your brains and my beauty. And we have an unbeatable combination. All of that played a role in the coming of the Six-Day War. Another role was also played by Russia. Russia always has its own motives, and most of the time they are sinister. It was at the beginning of this time, beginning in 1965, that the first trickle of emigration of Jews from Russia began to occur. Jews were let out of Russia. Most of them turned up in Israel. And, uh, in fact, uh, it was used by Russia as a means of blackmail against its Arab clients. Uh, many a time it was said to the Arabs that if you don't follow the Russian line and if you uh, abandon us and you want to go with the West, and then there was another three or 400,000 Russian Jews whom we will allow to go to Israel. And uh, since the Russian Jews initially who came to Israel were of a very high caliber uh, intellectually and technologically speaking, uh, the Arabs saw it as a terrible threat. And this was a, uh, a type of blackmail that was uh, very effective. In order to keep the blackmail going, though, Russia had to let out some Jews to keep the threat effective. And therefore what Russia did was uh, begin small-scale immigration into Israel of Russian Jews under the guise of reuniting families, all sorts of things. Now, Russia and Israel then had diplomatic relations in 1965. 
Russia had broken off diplomatic relations once before with Israel, but it restored them in the early 1960s. And this uh, relationship between Russia and Israel was always a strained and a difficult one. And at the heart of the matter was the issue of the Russian Jews, whether or not they would be allowed free immigration, whether in substantial numbers they would be allowed to come to Israel. Russia also sold arms to the Arabs, to Egypt, to Syria. Jordan always purchased its arms from the West, from England and the United States. Russia sold enormous amount of arms, and Russia sold the most modern and sophisticated equipment. And in order to enable the Egyptians to assimilate that equipment and use it well, Russia sent along advisors. And at one time, Russia had as many as 25,000 military advisors in Russia. There was an, in Egypt, there was an entire Russian colony outside of Cairo. And uh, they were not well liked either by the Egyptian people or the Egyptian army, but they served the purpose. They trained the Egyptian army in the use of these weapons. Advanced MiG fighters, uh, Russian tanks, the latest tanks, many of them were tanks that were even the Warsaw Pact nations at that time did not have in their arsenal. And artillery... And it was tra and they were trained in Egyptian, and the Egyptians were trained in Russian military tactics as well. And uh, beginning in 1965, Nasser had a two-year goal of bringing the Egyptian army up to a point where he felt convinced that they would be able to overcome the Israelis. In terms of numbers and in terms of guns and armament, the advantage was all on the side of the Egyptians. Add to that the uh, fact that Israel had a hard time getting arms in the world. The United States then was in the midst of one of its uh, pious periods when it embargoed arms sales to the Middle East to all sides. As a practical matter, it meant that Israel couldn't get any arms because the Arabs were getting their arms from Russia without any problem. Uh, England did sell to Israel. Israel was able to buy chieftain tanks and centurion tanks. England did not sell them the latest models, but the Israelis renovated them. The Israelis took and put on uh, better guns. They simplified the tanks. Uh, the system uh, so far in Israel has been to make things simpler and less complicated because in desert warfare and sand warfare, all of the complicated uh, uh, computer uh, type of technology which exists on war machines gets clogged with sand and it becomes useless. And therefore, uh, relatively speaking, the more simple the better. Today the situation has changed because of the technology and uh, there's no such thing as a simple weapon anymore. But in the 1960s the Israelis were able to purchase these types of tanks from England and to renovate them. They also had some light tanks that they bought from France, AMX tanks, which uh, were little more than training tanks. But Israel struck a deal, and uh, that's to the credit of Shimon Peres, that uh, he's the man who negotiated the deal. They struck a deal with France. For various reasons, de Gaulle, at the beginning of his regime, was uh, not pro-Israel, but he was against the Arabs. Eventually, his good sense would get hold of him, 
and he would become, uh, he would say that the French uh, national interest required that it be on the side of the Arabs. But he uh, initially agreed to a series of arms deals which built up the Israeli army and especially the Israeli Air Force. Israel was able to purchase from France three types of planes. One was called the Fuga Magistar, which was a small training jet that nobody else in the world ever used for combat, but the Israelis would use it for close support combat and tank warfare. It was a one-seater, small, rather slow jet. The second jet that they bought was a Mystère. Mystère was a bomber, French bomber. And the third uh, plane that they bought was the famous Mirage, which today still, in its updated version, is the mainstay of the French uh, Air Force. Uh, the company that produced these planes was owned by a Jew, not much of a Jew. Uh, in fact, later in life he even converted and became a Roman Catholic. But at this time he was a Jew, and uh, he received a license from the French government, and he sold the planes to Israel, and Israel uh, developed them, they incorporated them in the Israeli Air Force. It became the Israeli Air Force, these three types of French jets. For various reasons, the uh, world and the Arabs were unaware of the potency of this plane. They were unaware of the fact that uh, these jets used correctly could negate a great deal of the Arab firepower and that uh, the jets had uh, great uh, potential if used in, a, uh, in an opportunistic fashion. Also, Israel bought gunboats from France, special small gunboats, uh, not buying battleships or cruisers or even destroyers, but small gunboats, but very highly mobile and with a tremendous amount of firepower. Rockets, missiles, so that a gunboat, this type of a gunboat, was equal in firepower to World War II battleships at uh, a fraction of the cost and at a fraction of the size and with a great deal more mobility and less vulnerability to attack the planes and to other surface vessels. By this time, uh, David Ben-Gurion had passed from the scene as the leader of the uh, Labor Party and the new Prime Minister of Israel after Sharet was Levi Eshkol. Eshkol was a uh, very good technocrat. He was a person that ran the government very well, but he was not an inspiring figure at all. He was not a good speaker, and uh, he uh, had very little of the charisma that would be necessary at this uh, moment of crisis. In world Jewry, everybody, we all rolled along in a, in a fool's paradise that uh, Israel would always be protected and that the world would protect it and that there would be no problems. That was further fueled by the fact that the United Nations had its peacekeeping force present in the Sinai. It had its peacekeeping force present at the entrance to the Gulf of Aqaba to guarantee free shipping. And even though Nasser had violated his word, 
and did not allow any free ship, Israeli shipping or even any ships to Israel in the Suez Canal, and the state of Israel and the Jewish world felt it could live with that inconvenience and that the war was not a problem. It wasn't going to happen. The Arabs weren't going to attack again. And that was the uh, situation at the, in the early part of May 1967. But Nasser, in May 1967, on the basis of uh, reports that he received from his Russian advisors and reports that he received regarding Israeli strength as well, felt that the time was propitious. That he J.M. in the A.M. with Harry Barrel Wine and his lecture on the Six-Day War, which, of course, will continue in a few minutes right here at J.M. in the A.M. It's Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. It's Rosh Chodesh Morning. At J.M. in the A.M. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonish Masarav, Zevin Bersavalevi, and... Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We say in the special Shmon Esrei for Musaf on Rosh Chodesh, the Rosh Chodesh is stated in the plural tense. However, on Shabbos, we only say in the singular tense. Why is this so? There is a commentary that says the reason is because B'nai Yisrael were Mekadesh de Chodesh. B'nai Yisrael had the chance to sanctify each of the months. It was dependent on Klal Yisrael. That's why it's written Chodeshechem in the plural, your months. It means that the Chodesh was given over to Klal Yisrael. As it is written in Shmos, HaChodesh Hazel Lochem. Rosh Chodeshim, the month is given over to you, the head of the months. This is something that is amazing for an individual to think about. The ability to bring Kedush in this world is, yes, given by Hashem, but it is also the power of a human being to add Kedusha, to add holiness, to become sanctified. That's why we answer, Mikadesh HaShabos, by Shabbos, which is said in Loshon Yochid, or the singular tense. That, of course, is by Hashem. Hashem declared that there should be Shabbos. However, when it comes to Rosh Chodesh, Rosh Chodeshechem is Loshon Rabim. It is in the plural tense, because it means that every Jew has the ability to bring Kedusha into this world. A few weeks ago, a young man came to me and he told me that he's ashamed of certain things that he has done. He feels self-conscious about going to shul, about doing mitzvahs. He feels it's just not right for him. I told him, not only is it right, but Hashem is waiting for you to add Kedusha in this world. A Jew has the ability to add holiness in this world. And in fact, even the malachim, even the angels in heaven, are told to wait and to listen to the Kedusha of B'nai Yisrael. I begged him that he should reanalyze it, rethink it, and come back to Shul. He told me that he would think about it. However, I think we all need to think about it. Our great ability to add Kedusha into this world. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, 
bringing you morning chizik. Have a good Chodesh and a very nice day. Thank you very much. That's Rabbi Goldwasser, of course, on a uh, Wednesday morning, Rosh Chodesh morning, Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine is, uh, and his lectures are the centerpiece of our nine days spoken word format during JM and the AM during the nine days. And uh, right now we're in the midst of a lecture by Rabbi Wine on the state of Israel, excuse me, on the six-day war, more accurately, on the six-day war. And uh, information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. We continue with the Six-Day War here at JM in the AM. It was the famous Mirage, which today still, in its updated version, is the mainstay of the French uh, Air Force. Uh, the company that produced these planes was owned by a Jew, not much of a Jew. Uh, in fact, later in life, he even converted. He became a Roman Catholic. But at this time, he was a Jew. And uh, he received a license from the French government, and he sold the planes to Israel. And Israel uh, developed them. They incorporated them in the Israeli Air Force. It became the Israeli Air Force, these three types of French jets. For various reasons, the uh, world and the Arabs were unaware of the potency of this plane. They were unaware of the fact that uh, these jets used correctly could negate a great deal of the Arab firepower. And that uh, the jets had uh, great uh, potential if used in, a, uh, in an opportunistic fashion. Also, Israel bought gunboats from France, special small gunboats, uh, not buying battleships or cruisers or even destroyers, but small gunboats, but very highly mobile and with a tremendous amount of firepower. Rockets, missiles, so that a gunboat, this type of a gunboat, was the equal in firepower to World War II battleships at uh, a fraction of the cost and at a fraction of the size and with a great deal more mobility and less vulnerability to attack the planes and to other surface vessels. By this time, uh, David Ben-Gurion had passed from the scene as the leader of the uh, Labor Party and the new Prime Minister of Israel after Sharet was Levi Eshkol. Eshkol was a uh, very good technocrat. He was a person that ran the government very well, but he was not an inspiring figure at all. He was not a good speaker, and uh, he uh, had very little of the charisma that would be necessary at this uh, moment of crisis. In world Jewry, everybody, we all rolled along in a, in a fool's paradise that uh, Israel would always be protected and that the world would protect it and that there would be no problems. That was further fueled by the fact that the United Nations had its peacekeeping force present in the Sinai. It had its peacekeeping force present at the entrance to the Gulf of Aqaba to guarantee free shipping. And even though Nasser had violated his word and did not allow any free ship, Israeli shipping, or even any ships to Israel in the Suez Canal, and the state of Israel and the Jewish world felt it could live with that inconvenience. 
and that the war was not a problem. It wasn't going to happen. The Arabs weren't going to attack again. And that was the uh, situation at the in the early part of May 1967. But Nasser in May 1967, on the basis of the reports that he received from his Russian advisors and reports that he received regarding Israeli strength as well, felt that the time was propitious, that he now had an army well-trained enough to mount a bitter and complete war, and that he would be able to... Uh, conquer Israel handily and he therefore decided that he would not wait any longer his internal problems and his foreign problems were such a nature that he felt that by delaying he would only compound the problem so in order to solve the problem he was going to go to war uh, the Israelis celebrated their uh, Independence Day parade uh, on the 19th anniversary of the State of Israel in May 1967, blissfully oblivious to what was going to happen in the next three weeks. This was a storm that blew up overnight. It uh, had almost no uh, precedent in the speed that it occurred and in the lethal danger that uh, now was present. Nasser announced that the Egyptian army was going to go on maneuvers in the Sinai. Uh, going on maneuvers in the Sinai was a violation of the agreement, of the uh, peacekeeping agreement between uh, Israel and Egypt and the United Nations that had uh, prevailed since the end of the Sinai campaign. Again, but Sinai belonged to Egypt and Egypt had sovereignty over it, and there really was no way to keep the Egyptian army out. So the Egyptian army crossed with great fanfare and in extremely large numbers. They crossed the uh, Suez Canal and came east into the Sinai. Israel protested, but nothing happened. Nasser, uh, in the time-honored uh, manner, uh, it's almost a repeat of the story of Hitler, where he took one country and then he would digest it and look around and see if there were any repercussions, and if there weren't any, so then he would he'd go on to the next move. Nasser saw that nothing happened. The United Nations took no action. No one took any action. So then he moved to the second step. The second step is that he would prevent... Israeli shipping from coming up the Gulf of Su uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. No ship would be able to sail past Sharm el Sheikh. And he installed guns. He claims he claimed to have installed guns. Later, it was found out to have been a fake. But he claimed to have installed guns, artillery guns, on the point at Sharm el Sheikh, and that any ships that were bound into the Gulf of Aqaba that were headed for the Israeli port of Eilat would be shot at. Now, this was an interference with the hallowed principle of international law, free navigation of the waterways of the world, to which all of the major countries in the world had signed an agreement. They were all committed that such a thing would not be allowed. Poor little Israel went and complained, 
And everybody told them, you know, to take it easy. They'll try and work it out. Naturally, uh, there were the, the United States uh, w uh, considered the United States considered sending one of its own flagships up the Gulf of Aqaba to test the blockade to see whether NASA really meant it. But for all the uh, good intentions and good ideas, nothing happened. President Johnson made soothing remarks. Uh, Israel saw a pattern beginning to emerge. The next pattern, the next piece of the pattern was when uh, Nasser ordered the United Nations peacekeeping troops off of Egyptian territory. He said that they were only there at the sufferance of the Egyptian government. The Egyptian government that uh, invited them there in 1957, now it was ten years later, and he was inviting them all to go home. The General Secretary of the United Nations, who then was a Burmese, who knew, uh, agreed that Nasser had a right to do so. We have very bad experiences with Secretary Generals of the United Nations. First, Mr. Waldheim, who's our noted friend, and then this Burmese. It just, uh, it just doesn't go for us. I don't think you can get the job if you're uh, <coughs> if you're in good standing with certain peoples in the world. In any event, the uh, United Nations withdrew its peacekeeping force. Uh, the Gen Secretary General flew and to Egypt and had conferences with Nasser, but it all came to nothing. And again, you had. Uh, shipping blocked in the Gulf of Aqaba. You had the United Nations peacekeeping forces removed. You had a large Egyptian army in the Sinai moving towards the Israeli border. Now Israel began to take notice. And Israel warned Egypt uh, not to continue along that line because uh, Israel would certainly defend itself and go to war. The United States as is its custom, issued pronouncements that everybody should, you know, take a shower and two aspirin and rest up and they'll be back to them later. And that really didn't do anything for anyone, except it showed, again, the impotence that of America in a situation such as this, where there really, really was it had no more influence on the situation. The United States attempted to talk to Russia to have Russia restrain Egypt, but instead of restraining Egypt, Russia encouraged Egypt. Russia felt that it had everything to gain here. Uh, if the Arab states won, it would enhance Russia. If the Arab states lost, it would make them more dependent upon Russia. That was Russia's uh, terribly uh, cynical policy. But the policy was correct. That Russia could not lose. If the Arabs won, then the Russians won. If the Arabs lost, then where else was, were the Arabs going to go except the Russia? Who else was going to save them? And that's exactly how it worked out for Russia. So Russia had nothing to lose by this, everything to gain, and Russia encouraged it, therefore. Now, Nasser, in his uh, diabolical plan, uh, wanted that Israel should be surrounded on all sides. It should not be a war of Egypt 
alone against Israel because he was afraid and deep down in his heart that Israel would be able to mobilize a sufficient army and be able to defend itself successfully against Egypt. He therefore uh, had a conference with the leaders in Damascus, the Syrians. The Syrians have remained until today the most implacable foes of the state of Israel, the Syrians and the Iraqis, far more than any of the other Arabs. And the Syrians agreed to join in the venture. The Syrians agreed that they would shell the Israeli positions in the Galil from the Golan Heights, which they controlled. But the, uh, the uh, Syrians, uh, to a certain extent, double-crossed Nasser because they never sent their army into Israel in the Six-Day War. They shelled, and they fired upon the Israeli targets, and they pinned down a certain number of troops, but they never sent their army in unlike the Yom Kippur War, which we'll also discuss later, where the Assyrians were the main threat almost. What really uh, clinched the matter that there was going to be a war was the behavior of King Hussein. Hussein was afraid that he would miss the train. He saw now that Syria and Egypt, his two arch enemies in the Middle East, had made an alliance. On paper, his military analysts showed him that, e that there was a very strong likelihood that Egypt and Syria would win the war. They also convinced him that diplomatically the world would do nothing to support Israel. And therefore, he was afraid that he would lose because if Egypt and Syria were successful, then they would come not only against the Israeli part of Palestine, they would come against the Jordanian part of Palestine also. And he was afraid that he'd be expelled from the old city of Jerusalem and lose that stature and to lose the trade and the commerce and the tourism. Therefore, when he added it up, he had to go into the war. The Israelis always mocked him afterwards, and they said that the... In 67, when he should have stayed out, he went in. And in 73, when he should have went in, he stayed out. But in, he decided that he would go in. And he met with Nasser. You have the famous picture of the newspapers of the Times, uh, how embracing the two arch enemies who said uh, absolutely terribly uh, insulting things about each other and their ancestry and everything else. Uh, embraced in the uh, in the hug of uh, anticipated victory over the state of Israel and throwing the Jews into the sea. And the Jordanians placed their army under the command of an Egyptian general so that there would be a unified command. There was one Egyptian general that was in charge of all the armies and it was all under one unified command. The uh, alliance with Nasser by Hussein sealed the fate of the Six-Day War. Israel knew then that it had to go to war because of the fact that they were now surrounded on all sides and that it was not a matter that would go away. Uh, Abba Ibn, who then was uh, the Israeli foreign minister, traveled the world, stopping at all the world's capitals to enlist the good wishes of 
the world leaders, but nobody would do anything to stop it. And there, Abbe even got the first inkling from General de Gaulle that France was also about ready to change sides before the Six-Day War, in which de Gaulle told, warned uh, even that if Israel goes to war, it will lose the friendship of France. Well, Israel had no choice. Uh, Eben had outlined to de Gaulle very clearly. So de Gaulle signaled the change of policy, which after the Six-Day War would become so evident, uh, France thought, uh, sought a uh, means to reestablish its influence in the Arab world. Now, I need not tell you that the Jews throughout the world were frightened out of their minds because here was the specter of the Holocaust happening all over again, barely 25 years after the first one. The state would be destroyed. There would, no one would defend it. And the uh, Arabs, in their typical hyperbole, they broadcast all sorts of threats, you know, the Jewish women, prepare yourselves. Uh, we're going to throw all the men into the sea. You know, everybody... And there was a man by the name of Ahmed Shukeri, who was the head of the Palestine Liberation Organization. That was in its first Gilgal before, uh, before, before Yasser. Yasser didn't have a beard then. Before Yasser took it over. So this guy Shukeri, who was uh, a Saudi, and he was a, a foul-mouthed, evil person, he said the worst things, the worst threats, and he said them on public uh, interviews and television, what he was going to do. And therefore, the Jewish world trembled. It trembled. If I, I, I don't know, I don't remember uh, very well Hitler, but the impression that I had is that there was, the fear was greater than even before Hitler. J.M. in the A.M. or a barrel wine who is, uh, whose lectures are the centerpiece of our nine days programming uh he's in the midst of a lecture about the six-day war quite a topic very important topic and um and we will continue that lecture coming up information about rabbi wine's lecture is 1-800-499-WEIN 1-800-499-WEIN for information about rabbi wine's Lectures, or you can go to the web, rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com. J.M. and the A.M. on a Wednesday, Rosh Chodesh. Today's Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av, all the traditional editions for Rosh Chodesh, including half Hallel. Uh, I should start with Yalav Yavo. Yalav Yavo, half Hallel, special Torah reading. Musaf, Baruch Inafshi, whatever your custom calls for it, is after all a Rosh Chodesh morning, the first of the nine days here at J.M. and the A.M. Um, we've been mentioning that this coming Sunday at Congregation Keter Torah at 600 Romer Avenue in Teaneck, New Jersey, we're going to have an opportunity to hear a front lines report from the chief rabbi of the Ukraine, Rabbi Moshe Osman. You're invited to join Jews around the world who are concerned about the 100,000 Jews in Ukraine for a report on the situation on the ground. The chief rabbi will share how his initiative, Mitzvah for Ukraine, has become one of Ukraine's most efficient and impactful humanitarian organizations, serving thousands of Jews and non-Jews around the, across the country. 
There'll be a Q&A with Rabbi Osman uh, that'll follow his presentation. It's this Sunday, te- the 23rd of July, starting at 10.15 in the morning at Congregation Keter Torah, 600 Romer Avenue in Teaneck, New Jersey. Information, office of chiefrabbi.org. Again, to support the cause and for more information, office of chiefrabbi.org. He has been the uh, chief rabbi of the Ukraine since 2005. Rabbi Moshe Osman, welcome to JM in the AM. <laughs> Shalom Abracha. Hello. What a pleasure to speak to you. I, I hope you're safe and sound. Over the last year and a half, we've seen videos, we've gotten reports uh, when you and some of your friends and neighbors and colleagues have been in very dangerous situations. Um, I, I, ho- I hope things are relatively quiet now. No. No, first of all, no quiet. It's, uh, it's changed. It's, uh, situation changed. Yes, really. In the beginning of the war, uh, I was in uh, yes in Kiev, uh, Kiev area, in Kiev, and in in Anatevka, Jewish settlement near Kiev. With uh, we evacuated uh, thousands of thousands and thousands uh, Jewish people from uh, from Kiev and region uh, and region region, not only from Kiev uh, and uh, from all Ukraine. And uh, it was a very hard situation in the beginning of the war because the Kiev, the Russian forces, uh, we day and night we was. Uh, they shelled uh, to Kiev, and uh, and now and now this change. And they know and will stay in Kiev. But uh, <laughs> every uh, about every day we have the oh, Iran drones or missiles, uh, big missiles. They send into Kiev to area to today tonight. It was in Odessa, and Odessa very strong implosions. Uh, they t- um, they uh, many people were wounded. And uh, not only this, in all this, in South Ukraine, it's changed every day. What, what happened? A few days ago, we have a mini missiles to Kiev, and uh, that's why that's why it's a dangerous situation. It's a real war. It's a hard, hard war, and we we do what we can do to help people, to save people, to survive people. It's very, as you can imagine, it's very hard for for most of the people who are listening, because the people who are listening right now are in places like the United States other parts of the world as well, but generally speaking, the United States. It's hard for us to relate uh, to what it's like being in the middle of a war and and how people can survive, how people can go about a a day where they're so desperate for necessities, uh, where they're in great need of money and financial help. I mean, how would you describe how an average person, Jew and non-Jew, lives under such a war time situation you know you know uh, i never expected in my in my life that i'll be in such situation that i see with my eyes the real war real real war real uh, day and night and the people killed every day and uh, uh, people soldiers uh, civilians and uh, it's a very, very big front line and uh, after the World War Two, is is it's never happened. So it's, it's so big a strategy in Europe, and uh, but it's it's a real a reality. And I, I because um, I think as we are Jewish people, we are uh, we are we cannot stay stay, stay and see how it's uh, how people kill kill people and. Uh, they become to be wounded uh, without legs or arms. And I see it every day when I come to hospitals, not only me, as I had my big comment, uh, our volunteers, uh, 
And we are, because we are Jewish people, we, we are Rachmonim Bnei Rachmonim. That's why we, uh, we have, uh, we help to Jew, Jewish people. So many people, for example, we have uh, many old people in their homes along, and we have to come them to bring, uh, they doesn't want to, to leave their homes. And uh, they, we bring the medicine and the food and uh, what, what they need. In uh, winter, it was a radiator, and we did because the Russian Russian forces they 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 fighting to the energy system, uh, special fighting, and now uh, they make a problem, and we have to 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 bring them the, what they need, and we have to we bring, for example, the last time uh, in the South Ukraine it was a damn disaster. It's a, it's a real tragedy, it's an ecologic situation. And we brought, we brought many, many trucks there to all people uh, to eat and water. It's a water problem. Problems we brought from Israel now, water system, water from air, water clear systems. And we, we, we bring them free, we give it to people, we, and we, we do what we can. That's, that's, why, that's why I think it's... Uh, uh, I cannot see because I was here as, as a rabbi. I was a rabbi of Jewish community, but now I'm a rabbi, rabbi of Ukraine. Because, uh, you know, it's uh, because uh, uh, people come. I don't ask them. Uh, we we brought we we help to Jewish communities. It's we uh, understood. But we see there's so many people uh, that uh, in the strategies. You know, you, you in America people. First of all, I would like to to thank all the American people that stand. Uh, stand uh, behind Ukraine, help us, uh, help to Ukraine, and the, uh, people from all parties, from Republican, Democrats, every the stands and the, and the people, the Jewish people, and no, no Jewish people stand with Ukraine. But I understand that uh, people are, are tired because it's just more than one year war, and the people tired. But uh, we are not, we cannot be tired here because we. Uh, we we have to work. I thank to Godish Borogu, to the Hashem that put me in the right time in the right place. And I because there's so many people who can to survive every day. And uh, I thank to Hashem. It's it. today's Rosh Chodesh. You told I uh, would like to. We said Galel in the morning. We said Galel in a Jewish special place on Natevka. You know, on Natevka, Fidel on the roof. We had declared this. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, in the real Natevka. Yes, yes. We, it's, it's a miracle story. I I'll say this story, and when I come to uh, to America. I said this miracle of miracle story, but because uh, all American Jewish people know was Anatevka, so that's why I call it Anatevka. I build it in that place, the real place that the writer Sholom Aleichem wrote about. You see, in Russian, it's called Anatovka, and uh, he, he he wrote his, his book. But in America, that they make a, a famous show, no, this musical. They call, they said Anat the Fiddler of this way called Anatevka. That's oh. why. Then I bought the land in this place. I, I understood this this place. I called it Anatevka. But, and this Anatevka real survived a lot, a lot of people. And I explained this. It's a long story. We have many stories. And uh, people, we, that we, 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 I invite people to come. Uh, come that uh, you, you said that we, I have um, people invite me to the American, to New Jersey, New York. Yeah, and this, I'll uh, exp explain. Yeah, Rabbi so. Moshe Osman, who is the U chief rabbi of the Ukraine, is going to be speaking uh, and he will tell that story and many other stories uh, this coming Sunday, beginning at 1015 uh, at the Congregation Keter Torah, 600 Romer Avenue in Teaneck, New Jersey. For information to sponsor the chief rabbi's work in Ukraine uh, to help him do what he is describing to us this morning, office 
of chiefrabbi.org, office of chiefrabbi.org. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. On Sunday, Rabbi Osman's presentation will be followed by a Q&A um, so that you'll have an opportunity to ask him questions uh, regarding what the last year and a half has been like in the Ukraine. It's, again, as I said earlier, uh, in another context, it, it's hard for us to relate to some of the things that are going on. Uh, you mentioned people who are, you know, trapped in their homes, and, you know, trapped is a relative term. Some feel they just, you know, don't want to leave, which I totally understand. Uh, but is there an infrastructure? I mean, you mentioned about water that has to come from Israel and things like that. But are there pharmacies? Are there functioning hospitals? Are there supermarkets where if someone did have money, there's a supply chain that's actually bringing food into these areas? What are all those things like? Uh, thank, uh, first of all, Nochum, I would like to thank you that you're, that you're real. That we, we, did, we didn't recognize each other, but uh, you have a, a very big heart. It's, uh, thank you that you say people that to help, to help us, to help to people. And uh, uh, yes, real, what we need, we need a lot of things. Uh, and uh, Are there functioning need, hospitals? Uh, Are there supermarkets that have supplies? Like, what is it like in these cities? No, no, no. It's it like no, yes. Supermarkets work, working. Yes, we can, we can, we can buy here uh, food. Yes, we buy here food. And uh, for example, and uh, hospitals working. You know, but hospitals is it's uh, full by people that don't have a, a real place. For example, you know, I I bring, I brought here. I come uh, last year. I come here to the hospital, Central Hospital of Ukraine. Uh, to meet to meet uh, uh, the Jewish soldier that was wounded, and I come. It was uh, it was I don't know. It's in, in America. It's, uh, here it's, it's uh, 35 degrees Celsius. It's very was very very warm, and uh, people lay there and, and they cannot uh, heal healthing because because so uh, because people without uh, legs without arms. And I immediately this day I bought the condition air conditioners for whole hospital. And uh, after this, during two, two weeks, I bought uh, for 16 hospitals in Ukraine. Uh, I bought conditions that we put it, and I checked for that. Uh, that's it. They worked, and the conditions saved a lot, a lot of lives. And Jewish, no Jewish. And and uh, in in the in the winter, there was a problem with heating. They they worked at this. The conditions worked at the heating. That's a, I I say you only one uh, example. Uh, nobody, nobody think about it, and nobody they didn't didn't have money for this because all money go to the to the war, to the weapons, and the, but nobody think that's that's because to survive the, for example, people wounded, you know, you need you need to make normal temperature. For example, for for the uh, how was the it was a, operations making sur, sur, no. surgery, surgery, uh, no, surgery, surgery, yes. Yes, many surgeries I put, uh, I put, we put, I, I uh, put condition, air conditioning, and now another hospital called me, and this year we, we, uh, we add what we can. It's one example, for yeah, example. Yeah, I mean, nobody, look, I, I, I said, I said this earlier in the week, and it's obvious, I said this earlier in the week, the more money you have, the more you can help people, because it sounds like the needs are endless. That's really what it sounds like. So the more money you have, uh, the more you can help people. It's as simple as that. And everybody out there, it's now Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. It's a time for Ahavat Chinam. It's a time to really give and help people, people we don't know and people who are in really difficult situations. 
Um, and, and we ask everybody to support the cause. Come to the event on Sunday at Congregation Keter Toro uh, here in Teaneck, which starts at 10.15 in the morning, and support uh, the chief rabbi's work. He's been there 18 years. He's been through it all, especially now at the war. He could literally say he's been through it all. Officeofchiefrabbi.org, officeofchiefrabbi.org. I, I know to some people they may think this is a ridiculous question because obviously life and death takes precedence over everything else. But uh, are you able to gather people together to come to shul? Is there a uh, is there a, a minion? Is there still prayer services going on where you are, Rabbi Osman? Every day, every day, uh, uh, shachris and mincha. Every day we have uh, Marif, No, every day because not, uh, because here the in evening uh, in evening is uh, close close people get, no from uh, from the twelve o'clock from the no, no midnight. Uh, till morning, people cannot go, go th- through the um, uh, streets in the streets because the military, has, no military, uh, special special military. I don't know how it's in English military situation, military law, and uh, that's why it's in the in the Marif, no, no every day. But Shachris Minka, yes, and Shabbos we have a lot of people here, and uh, and uh, today we have few people in the, in the synagogue in the, in Anatevka. We had here today delegation from Israel. From Israel, from a minister of uh, minister of diaspora, the uh, chief of uh, of staff of Israel, and and there was an our Natevka, and uh, so <laughs> amazing that we had the minions there, and people we have uh, refugees there, many Jewish Jewish refugees. We had few minions today, and there and this, and. Uh, because we, we have refugees from the uh, Kherson, Nikolaev Oblast region, people that uh, run away from we we took it there away from the then so, disaster. So every yeah. time every time you walk into shul, I'm sure people are coming over to you that they need something. They need money. They need help. I mean, it's it, it, it's. You can you can see in my in my Twitter. I have in the English uh, Twitter, uh, Chief Rabbi of Ukraine, and and the, in non English we have in Facebook. Uh, that you can see uh, our work. We, we can see, for example, lines of people of the refugees, uh, thousands of people that we give every week. We give humanitarian aid, uh, food packages, big uh, big uh, packages. People that uh, uh, is only refugees we give, but it's thousands of thousands of people. Many of them are Jewish and no Jewish too. We we help them and uh, we have the medicine. We help and uh, another many pro- many programs. I'll, I'll uh, and uh, you can see you can see it's it's uh, uh, yes and. Uh, we have many stories. We have many stories. You know, every day different stories. Uh, how we survive, people. And uh, so thank you for thank you very much for your help. And we need much, much more help. And uh, be our partners. Yeah, I say no, no. It's not only help. Be our partners to save people. I think it's a, it's a, it's a big partner of mitzvah because it's so 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 many big mitzvahs we have real mitzvahs to save right people and uh, you can see it it's what we do what we do and what we have to do much more and we try to do it those of us who uh, get a good night's sleep those of us who could put our heads on our pillows at night and literally you know sleep peacefully unlike Rabbi Osman and all the people in the Ukraine uh, let's do our part to help the rabbi do what he can uh, the more he has, the more he's able to uh, distribute packages, the more he's able to give humanitarian aid, the more he's able to give money to people who are in need, and certainly the more he's able to help people who are in the hospital 
and going through very, very challenging situations. We are asking everybody to do two things. Number one, hey, it's the nine days. There's not much, there are not many events going on. <laughs> so try to be there this coming Sunday at Congregation Keter Torah in Teaneck, New Jersey, 600 Romer Avenue. When Rabbi Osman, the chief rabbi of the Ukraine, will report on all of this and will answer all your questions and tell some remarkable stories, including when he's been under military fire. He has been literally, uh, I mean, his life, we're talking about everyone's life, obviously, in the Ukraine is at risk. But he's, uh, he's been in some really precarious situations, to say the least, and God has been very, very kind to him. He's the first one to admit that. Uh, so that's number one, this coming Sunday at 10.15. And secondly... Um, the more money uh, the chief rabbi of the Ukraine has for his uh, for his um, um, for his uh, mitzvah for Ukraine organization, uh, the more he can do. It's as simple as that. So if you could take part, and all of us can uh, toss in a few dollars to help him out, that would be amazing. Go to the website officeofchiefrabbi.org, officeofchiefrabbi.org. Uh, Rabbi Osman, uh, a lot of people would find it very difficult to accept the challenge that you've accepted. So kolak vote to you, and I hope that the uh, our brothers and sisters listening around the world will respond and will certainly help you do whatever you can for the people in Ukraine. Thank you very much. I, I try to do it, try to do, to do more, you know. Uh, you know, I, I'll tell you something. Three three weeks ago, it's sure you saw in the, all the world, it was a... And it was a television, it's in the social media that how we was shelled in in Kherson uh, during our uh, evacuation uh, walk uh, to 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 survive people there in the dam disaster. And uh, the Russian forces they shot for us, and we was uh, we saw, we saw the death to our, by our eyes. Uh, we, we and I and my few my friends. That was with me, and the, after this, you know, this the life has changed. That's why. That's why. That's why uh, you understand much more what is what is uh, what is important in life. What's less important? But uh, I I would like to. Okay, I'll, I'll explain it when we will be there. Uh, and you and uh, yeah. I so yeah. so I so I so thank you because uh, because people you you would uh, involve us you interesting what happened here and I I, I very thank and I bless bless everybody that help us that think about us that pray for us and uh, thank you very much, Rabbi Osman. Good luck on Sunday. Uh, Rabbi Osman will be traveling from the Ukraine to Teaneck, New Jersey. He'll be at Congregation Keter Torah ten fifteen Sunday morning. Everybody try to be there. And uh, to support his amazing work and to get more information, go to the website, officeofchiefrabbi.org, officeofchiefrabbi.org. Rabbi Osman, kolak to you, and the good luck. Continued, continued Hatzlacha Rabbah. Thank you very much. A good chodesh. Chodesh tov to Olam Israel. And a good chodesh is right. Jam in the AM. It is a uh, Wednesday morning or a chodesh morning. As we continue with our nine days format here at JM in the AM. Yeah, there are limited events this Sunday, obviously. It's a nine days. So do something meaningful and increase the Havat Chinam by coming out to hear by Osman and hopefully supporting his work over in uh, the Ukraine.
A uh, couple of items uh, in our community calendar. Amit presents its 23rd Yomi Yun, a day of learning seminar for women by women. That's this morning at 10 a.m. at the Sephardic Temple, 775 Branch Boulevard in Cedarhurst. Bracha Rutner is the keynote speaker. Uh, registration 9.30 this morning, 10 o'clock with the program, and 11.45 with the luncheon. Uh, that's happening at the Sephardic Temple, Branch Boulevard in Cedarhurst, starting at 10 o'clock this morning. So head on over there. That's for ladies. Also for ladies, up in Parksville, Camp Hask invites you today to a Rosh Chodesh of meaning and inspiration at 10 o'clock, an exclusive tour and inside look at Camp Hask. And 11.15, Rebbe Zendina Schumacher and the Rev Judah will present. Um, so that's Camp Hask at 10 o'clock this morning for today. And uh, don't forget that the annual Catskills Nine Days Conference is also today with Mrs. Dina Schumacher uh, Dr. Hindi Klein, Dr. Shana Friedman, Dr. Faye Zakheim. Today at 1.30, the Falls View Estate Shul on Falls View Drive in Fallsburg, New York. Uh, that's the annual Catskills Nine Days Conference on the topic of I Just Can't Compete Anymore, Materialism and Its Effects on Us. Starts at 1.30, Falls View Estate Shul, unitedtaskforce.org for information. Unitedtaskforce.org. Dot org for information. Rabbi Beryl Wine is speaking to us about the Six-Day War. Information about Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Here is Rabbi Wine at JM in the AM. Diabolical plan uh, wanted that Israel should be surrounded on all sides. It should not be a war of Egypt alone against Israel because he was afraid and deep down in his heart that Israel would be able to mobilize a sufficient army and be able to defend itself successfully against Egypt. He therefore uh, had a conference with the leaders in Damascus, the Syrians. The Syrians have remained until today the most implacable foes of the state of Israel, the Syrians and the Iraqis, far more than any of the other Arabs and the Syrians agreed to join in the venture. The Syrians agreed that they would shell the Israeli positions in the Galil from the Golan Heights, which they controlled. But they, uh, the uh, Syrians, uh, to a certain extent, double-crossed Nasser because they never sent their army into Israel in the Six-Day War. They shelled, and they fired upon the Israeli targets, and they pinned down a certain number of troops, but they never sent their army in. Unlike the Yom Kippur War, which we'll also discuss later, where the Assyrians were the main threat almost. What really uh, clinched the matter that there was going to be a war was the behavior of King Hussein. Hussein was afraid that he would miss the train. He saw now that Syria and Egypt, his two arch enemies in the Middle East, had made an alliance. On paper, his military analysts showed him that, e that there was a very strong likelihood that Egypt and Syria would win the war. They also convinced him that diplomatically the world would do nothing to support Israel. And therefore, he was afraid that he would lose, because if Egypt and Syria were successful, then they would come not only against the Israeli part of Palestine, they would come against the Jordanian part of Palestine also. 
where he was afraid that he'd be expelled from the old city of Jerusalem and lose that stature and to lose the trade and the commerce and the tourism. Therefore, when he added it up, he had to go into the war. The Israelis always mocked him afterwards, and they said that uh, in 67, when he should have stayed out, he went in, and in 73, when he should have went in, he stayed out. But in, he decided that he would go in, and he met with Nasser. You have the famous picture of the newspapers of the Times, uh, how embracing the two arch enemies who said uh, absolutely terribly uh, insulting things about each other and their ancestry and everything else, uh, embraced in the, uh, in the hug of uh, anticipated victory over the state of Israel and throwing the Jews into the sea. And the Jordanians placed their army under the command of an Egyptian general so that there would be a unified command there was one Egyptian general that was in charge of all the armies, and it was all under one unified command. The uh, alliance with Nasser by Hussein sealed the fate of the Six-Day War. Israel knew then that it had to go to war because of the fact that they were now surrounded on all sides and that uh, it was not a matter that would go away. Uh, Abba Ibn, who then was uh, the Israeli foreign minister, traveled the world, stopping at all the world's capitals to enlist the good wishes of the world leaders, but nobody would do anything to stop it. And there Abba Ibn got the first inkling from General de Gaulle that France was also about ready to change sides before the Six-Day War which de Gaulle told, warned uh, even that if Israel goes to war, it will lose the friendship of France. Well, Israel had no choice. Uh, Eben had outlined to de Gaulle very clearly. So de Gaulle signaled the change of policy, which after the Six-Day War would become so evident, uh, France thought, uh, sought a uh, means to reestablish its influence in the Arab world. Now, I need not tell you that the Jews throughout the world were frightened out of their minds because here was the specter of the Holocaust happening all over again barely 25 years after the first one. The state would be destroyed. There would, no one would defend it. And the uh, Arabs, in their typical hyperbole, they broadcast all sorts of threats, you know, the... Jewish women, prepare yourselves. Uh, we're going to throw all the men into the sea. You know, everybody... And there was a man by the name of Ahmed Shukeri, who was the head of the Palestine Liberation Organization. That was in its first Gilgal before, uh, before, before Yasser. Yasser didn't have a beard then. Before Yasser took it over, so this guy Shukeri, who was uh, a Saudi and he was a, a foul-mouthed, evil person, he said the worst things, the worst threats, and he said them on public uh, interviews and television, what he was going to do. And therefore, the Jewish world trembled. 
it trembled. If I, I, I don't know. I don't remember uh, very well Hitler, but the impression that I had is that there was the fear was greater than even before Hitler of what was going to happen. And I remember that we had a day of prayer in uh, my synagogue in Miami Beach. Uh, there were days of prayer throughout the Jewish world. I mean, the synagogue was packed. People walked in off the streets. People who hadn't been in a synagogue Yom Kippur maybe for 25 years. They didn't know what to do with themselves because they felt the imminent destruction of the Jewish people. I also remember as a personal vignette that I don't know what got into people, but the, uh, the, the rabbinate in the United States, the combined rabbinate, all sent out messages that we should all go visit our local priests and ministers to try and enlist public support for Israel. And you look back at it, it was absolutely ludicrous. But I remember that we had a very uh, beautiful Episcopal church not far from us, and I tried to get an appointment with the, with the uh, rector of the church, and he wouldn't see me. He just wouldn't see me. And I don't think that my experience was uh, isolated. The rest of the world was more worried about the baseball season, about the important things that were going to happen. And the Jewish people felt isolated, frightened, just uh, cut off completely from any solace or hope. The Israeli army mobilized and they stood mobilized for almost two weeks and that was very expensive in Israel the mobilization and as we'll, uh, I'll point out to you later that part of the problem in the uh, in the Yom Kippur war was the expense of mobilizing the army and they, they, they had had so many false alarms and mobilized them so many times and every time you mobilize them cost them three or eight or ten million dollars or something so they decided that this time they wouldn't mobilize. You know, they were going to save the three million. So they were at standing an army at, for almost two weeks. And uh, Dayan, who uh, was, uh, they formed a government of national unity. So, so serious was the situation that they formed the government of national unity. So serious was the situation that the left wing, the Marach, brought in Menachem Begin into the government as a minister without portfolio, but as a minister in the government. I want you to know that Begin, uh, Begin was thrown out of the Knesset with regularity. Ben-Gurion, in all the years that Begin was in the Knesset, never referred to him by name. He said, the person who was sitting next to member of Knesset, Bader. And uh, they brought him in. They made a wall-to-wall coalition. Eshkol made a speech to the nation to be strong, and he broke down in the middle of the speech. It was the most depressing thing imaginable. I have that speech recorded here, but I'm not going to play it. But uh, I, I, it's something to hear, that he's, he broke in the middle of the speech telling everybody else to be strong. And the... No one knew what was going to happen. Uh, Dayan took a commanding role as Minister of Defense, and Dayan insisted that Israel strike first, that the only hope in this war was a what is necessarily called a preemptive strike. And in order to put the enemy off, uh, he made an announcement that the, he feels that the crisis is ending, 
And in the two weeks they've been standing there mobilized, nothing happened, so he doesn't think anything is going to happen, and that part of the Israeli army is being demobilized, which he did. He sent them home for Shabbos and brought them back Saturday night, also at great expense. But that was part Israel now engaged in this war of nerves. And on Monday morning, in the first week in June in 1967, the war began. I remember in being in shul for the first minion in the morning and people came in and said it. I remember that people didn't go to work that way. People didn't do anything. People just stayed. They stayed in shul. They stayed. Just people didn't go anywhere. And because of the fact that the Israeli radio went on blackout as far as news was concerned, during the, almost the first 18 hours of the war, there was no news, and the Arabs broadcast their news naturally. So their news was they're, they're in Tel Aviv, they're in Jerusalem, they're bombing, they're destroying, they're killing. What happened was that the Arabs believed their own propaganda. Hussein went into the war because he heard Nasser announce that the Israeli Air Force was destroyed. Nasser got on the radio and said he destroyed the Israeli Air Force. So Hussein went into the war. What had really happened was that on the morning, that Monday morning, Israel launched a surprise attack and in an hour and a half destroyed the entire Arab Air Forces of Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. Over 500 planes were destroyed at the loss of less than, I think it was 19 planes for the Israelis. Most of the Egyptian planes were caught on the ground. They attacked at tea time 8.15 in the morning everybody went to get his cup of tea and they caught 95% of the planes on the ground and destroyed them uh, they flew so low they flew as low as 6 feet over the Mediterranean for almost 70 miles I mean that's some job of being a pilot at flying at speeds of uh, sound and over the sound barrier in order to escape the radar and the Arab air forces were destroyed. Once the Arab air forces were destroyed, then Dayan said the war was won already. We still had to fight the war, but, but the tactical advantage had changed immediately. Azer Weitzman was then the commander of the air force, General Mordechai Hode, others, and they put across a, uh, an unbelievable feat of arms in being able to turn the planes around in record time, sending them, every plane almost hit its target. It was just, it was a, it was a classic example of uh, the destruction of an air force by another air force. It never had there been such a lopsided battle. Then Israel attacked on the Egyptian front. The, Egypt, the Israelis were divided into three main tank columns. One was led by Sharon, one was led by a man called Yafi, Mordechai Yafi, who later became the head of the Israeli Natural Forest Preserves. And the third was a general by the name of Tal. And these three tank corps burst into the Gaza Strip and, and defeated the Egyptian army, encircled the Egyptian army, and burst into the Sinai, and the Egyptian army was done away with in three days surrounded, uh, shot by planes. There, is a, there are famous pictures, uh, if you'll see, of the entire Mitla Pass, which is the road, the pass through the mountains in the Sinai, just 
end-to-end Egyptian vehicles in a line all shot up, burned, destroyed, trucks, tanks, artillery. The panic was on. Over uh, 5,000 Egyptian soldiers surrendered immediately, and the Israelis were at the Suez in record time. They got to the Suez faster than they did in the Sinai campaign. When that happened, uh, Nasser, there was nothing between the Israelis and Cairo. Uh, Nasser panicked very badly after announcing that he was winning the war and winning the war and winning the war. He all of a sudden was on the verge of losing his country. Hussein, as I mentioned to you, made the error of coming into the war. Hussein attacked in Jerusalem, uh, trying to capture the uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the Jordanians attacked Government House, which was the British uh, High Commissioner's residence, and after uh, and that was the United Nations uh, headquarters. And after a short battle, the Jordanians won it, and then the Israelis counterattacked, and the Israelis took it from them. Then Israel decided that it was going to bring some of the troops from the Sinai because that war was won already. They were going to bring some of the troops up and fight for Jerusalem. The fight for Jerusalem was concentrated in uh, a number of places. One place was Ammunition Hill, which, as the name implies, was a British ammunition fortress which protected East Jerusalem, and the Jordanians had extensive bunkers and defenses. And the paratroopers on uh, Tuesday night and on Wednesday morning of the war captured a high casualty that that piece when they when they had that piece so then the Jordanians were outflanked they had to move their men the Israelis reached Mount Scopus and then they reached Mount of Olives the Augusta Victoria Hospital going around the back of Jerusalem around the east side of Jerusalem until finally they had isolated the uh, area of the old city itself and the old city they attacked on uh, Wednesday morning in a uh, in a uh, in a uh, charge through Lions Gate through the northeastern gate of the city, and miraculously the Jordanians fled. They did not really put up much resistance. If it would have been house to house fighting, if it would have been uh, any sort of uh, concerted effort if they wanted to make it Stalingrad then who knows what would have happened but the the Jordanian army fled and in fleeing allowed the Israelis to capture the old city and to capture the western wall, the Kotel Amarovi I want you to hear, I have a record uh, of the Israeli news broadcast the live news broadcast of the capture of the wall and you'll also hear the blowing of the shofar by Rabbi Gorin who then was the chief chaplain of the Israeli army. You'll hear the gunfire in the background. You'll also hear the memorial prayer that he made for the fallen soldiers and the weeping of the men as they came to the Kotel. So if you'll listen to this, please. ראינו את העיר העתיקה מימיננו כשהיינו על הרכס של אוגוסטה ויקטוריה נהנינו מלמעלה מהמראה ואנחנו צרודים עכשיו מצעקות ההתלהבות וההתרגשות כשנכנסנו פנימה 
בראש כל השיירה. החפ"ק שלנו, על זחל, פרץ את השער, דרש על אופנוע, עבר במחנה ירדני, ועלינו ראשונים ובהתלהבות עצומה, ישר הנה אל הרחבה. מוישל'ה, סגני, מזה הרבה שנים, רץ מיד עם כמה חבר'ה והניפו את הדגל לכותל המערבי. ועכשיו כל העיר העתיקה בידינו, ואנחנו מאוד מאוד מאושרים.
נגד אויבי ישראל ושנפלו על קדושת השם העם והארץ בשחרור בית המקדש, הר הבית, הכותל המערבי וירושלים עיר האלוהים. בגני דתי מנוחתם, לכן בעל הרחמים יזכירם בסתר כנפיו לעולמים, ויצרור בצרור החיים את נשמתם. אדוני הוא נפלתם, וינוחו בשלום ולשכבם, ויענו לגורלם בקיץ הימין, ונאמר אמן! That uh, dramatic moment, I remember I was, uh, I was sitting in a car in Miami Beach and I heard the bulletin on the radio that the old city fell and the, the Jordanians had surrendered it and moved it. There was an old man from Shul, his name was Mr. Shamitz. All of us show him, I remember it. So he ran up to me and he embraced me so I mean, Jews felt that, you know, that they were vindicated. For an instant, you at least felt that you were vindicated. And that it was an open, uh, an open revelation of, uh, of a hand in history that sometimes we find hard to see. The uh, freeing of Jerusalem naturally forced the uh, Jordanian army and the Arabs to vacate the entire West Bank. They were outflanked, they were <coughs> harried and hounded by the Israeli Air Force, were pounded across the Jordan River, and along with the Jordanians, about 100,000 Arabs also fled, further compounding the Arab refugee problem. And the great Arab refugee camp at Jericho, if you go there today, it's still all deserted. They all fled across the river. And Hussein, uh, also one of the memorable pictures, uh, unshaven, haggard, tired, beaten, got on television and announced, you know, the defeat. And he cursed out all the other Arabs for fooling him, and they were broken. And the Israelis decided that they would settle the score with Syria now also. Beginning on Friday morning, they brought their troops. And many of these troops are the same troops they fought in the Sinai. And then the best battalions they brought up to Jerusalem. And after Jerusalem, they brought them up to fight again at the Golan. So some of them fought three times, three major battles in the week. It's a little like uh, the story of the uh, famous main regiment in the... Uh, Battle of Gettysburg that uh, Lee attacked uh, the first day on the right flank, and they were there. So to give them rest, they moved them to the left flank the next day, and then they were attacked there. And then to further give them rest, so the Meade moved them to the center. And the last day, the Pickett's charge was at the center of the line. 
So the same regiment really fought the whole battle of Gettysburg. Uh, a little of that happened here also. The Golan was an impregnable fortress. If you go there today, you see it. It's just unbelievable. Impregnable fortress, Russian uh, <coughs> system of defenses, mines, uh, bunkers, artillery, uh, machine guns. And there the Air Force was of aid, but the Air Force alone certainly could not do it because of the fact that you had to conquer it foot by foot, step by step, grenade by grenade. And the Israelis, uh, in a uh, what was a textbook exhibition of how foot soldiers can uh, dislodge an enemy, no matter how strong, from a defensive position, were able to push the Egyptian, uh, push the Syrians out of all three lines of defenses, and the Israelis captured. Uh, the peak of Mount Hermon. If you want to know what the peak of Mount Hermon means, when you're up there, you can see every plane landing at Damascus Airport. It's 20 miles from Damascus Airport. You can see with the binoculars every plane. You can read the markings on every plane. And today there's a great Israeli radar station there and everything. It's the highest point in the Middle East. The Syrians recaptured it in the 1973 war, and the Israelis, in the last hours of the war before the ceasefire, again at great cost, recaptured, recaptured it again. The Israelis pushed all the way to the city of Kanetra. The entire Golan, the northern Golan, the eastern Golan, the southern Golan, all were taken by the Israelis. The, Egypt, the Syrians were cleared out completely. The Israelis worked almost 10 years to remove the minefields just to remove the minefields, and there still are areas in the Golan where the mines have not been removed. And now, from the small little Israel that, uh, that was on the verge of being annihilated, it became the giant imperial Israel. Russia, true to its plan, immediately broke diplomatic relations with Israel. The uh, United Nations voted a ceasefire, which Egypt and the Arabs accepted, because without accepting the ceasefire, their governments would have fallen. Uh, Israel could have captured Damascus and Cairo and Amman, though God knows what they would do with them. And Israel felt convinced in the wake of this great military victory, a victory that, by the way, uh, Israel sustained about 700 a little over 700 dead and about 2,000 wounded. But uh, the, uh, the shine of the victory, the radiance, the glory of the victory was such that it overwhelmed the personal tragedy that was involved. Whereas in the Yom Kippur War, where Israel suffered substan more substantial casualties, the casualties were more bitterly felt because the shine of the victory wasn't there. And in uh, Dayan's famous words, on the next day, on the, after the, after the Six-Day War was over, so Dayan's famous words there, he said, well, I'm waiting at the telephone for Hussein to call. The Israelis were convinced somehow that the Arabs would now make peace, that the Arabs would trade peace for the territory that Israel acquired. Had the Arabs done so in 1967, they certainly could have struck the deal. Uh, politically, every party in Israel would have allowed it to happen. It would have given back, I don't know about East Jerusalem and the Kotel, but aside from that, 
everything could have, everything could have gone bad. But nobody called. And the Arabs played it true to their, uh, to their uh, policy, and their policy is always to fight the last war, always to make peace on the last terms. The Arabs said, now we're willing to let you have the partition board of 1948. Well, that was too late for that. Now they were talking about, now they could have had the 1967 borders. In 1973, they said we would settle for the 67 borders. It was too late. But the uh, the success and the victory in the Six-Day Wars, we will see, was the, was a great opportunity. Not all of the opportunities that were present then were exploited. Not in the political sense, not in the military sense, not in the social sense, not in the religious sense. But a whole new world opened up. And a whole new uh, viewpoint of Israel also opened up in the world. The Jews were enormously proud. And the non-Jews had a great deal of resentment. And in the United Nations and in other diplomatic arenas, a great deal of the resentment spilled over. And it became, a, it became very fashionable to look at Israel not with, uh, not with favorable eyes, not to be prejudiced towards it. Because in Golda Meir's uh, famous statement, I heard Golda Meir on the fifth day of the war, she came to Miami Beach for a bond drive. That uh, It's also one of the most moving scenes that I ever saw. Uh, she was in Miami Beach Thursday in the afternoon. And she got up to speak, and she spoke about, again, the conquest of Jerusalem. And she was one old tough lady, broke down and wept. And the entire audience wept with her so. And people, people, not that they gave money. There was a man that came up, and he gave her cufflinks. He had pure gold cufflinks. He said, take it all. You know what to do. So there arose this question, what to do? I, uh, I have uh, my friends from Chicago who went on Aliyah in the 1950s, so they always tell me the first Shavuos after the Six-Day War, this was the week before Shavuos. So the first Shavuos, the night of Shavuos for the Six-Day War, so it was the first Yontiv that the Kotel was available, and it wasn't like the Kotel now with the big plaza and everything. It was a narrow alleyway through the Arab neighborhood. And they said, starting three in the morning, all Jerusalem walked. You could hear like, like an army marching. Everybody went. And it was religious, observant, not, made no difference. The everybody went. And they, they, I know some of them have told me that they still live from that experience. Some of them told me that when Mashiach will come, so that's what it'll sound like. You know, the, the sound of footsteps in the night from every place in the city. People got up three in the morning to start so that four o'clock when the sun rose in Jerusalem, everybody would be there for sunrise for the Yont of at the Dakota. Oh, it was a dramatic moment in Jewish history, a moment that there will be other moments, certainly, and the other moments will perhaps eclipse this one. But in our time, rarely has a Jew ever had an opportunity to feel the emotions 
or to experience that type of feeling and sensitivity towards Jewish history and the Jewish past that the Six-Day War provided for. Unfortunately, there's always the day afterwards. The day afterwards, it's hard to assess it. It's hard to take the emotion and translate it into action, into positive results. Uh, hard to produce what should be produced. And that really will be the continuation of the story. Uh, but we have never come back to that level. We've never come back to that, to that achievement to that time. But in terms of what was achieved at that moment, that has to be one of the high watermarks, certainly, of our generation, and an indication of the capabilities and the hidden resources and even spiritual resources, because there was a great spiritual reawakening for a short period of time, and the unity and the strength that lies within the Jewish people. Well, that is pretty remarkable. An amazing lecture by Beryl Wine with those bonus uh, historical pieces, historical segments uh, built into the lecture. Um, on the Six-Day War, uh, today we had both uh, the story of Shimon Tzaddik from the perspective of uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine, and now the Six-Day War, a brilliant lecture of one of the most important um, times of modern Jewish history. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, it's 1-800-499-WEIN. That's 1-800-499-WEIN. Or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com, RabbiWEIN.com. JM in the AM, Wednesday morning. Today is Rosh Chodesh. If you haven't yet... uh, if that has not yet hit you, if you haven't <laughs> realized it yet, remember today's Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av, the first of the nine days. Um, all the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh, including Yalaviyavo, Half Hallel, special Torah reading, Mosef Baruch Inafshi, whatever your custom calls for on this Rosh Chodesh morning. Tomorrow we're back. We'll start at 6 a.m., and I certainly hope you'll join us here at JM in the a.m. And then Friday, our broadcast will include the weekly update starting at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time right here at JM in the AM. Um, I um, I wanted to remind everybody that Gimel Av was the Shloshim of, or will be the Shloshim, meaning it's the anniversary of the Shloshim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and Gimel Av this coming Friday We'll have an opportunity to uh, hear my father's brilliant hespit of the Lubavitch Rebbe, eulogy of the Lubavitch Rebbe that was uh, delivered on Gimel Av back in 1994 on the Shloshim Observance or at the Shloshim Observance for the Lubavitch Rebbe. So we'll do that on Friday. Uh, I saw that uh, uh, overnight uh, our good friend Ruby Kaplan mentioned on our app um, that Alexa now plays the NSN network. And those of you who want to uh, use Alexa to get straight to NSN, the language that you want is Alexa, play NSN network from TuneIn Radio. Again, Alexa, play NSN network from TuneIn Radio. 
That's how you want to uh, ask Alexa to um, air the Nahum Siegel Network. Um, coming up today here on the Nahum Siegel Network, it'll be the Z-Report Live Lunch, hosted by Yossi Zweig, live at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Tani Gutterman tonight at 8 o'clock after Charlie Bernhout's Hour of Jewish Soul. Uh, this week's topic is Have a Little Patience. Tani Gutterman at 8 p.m. tonight right here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Again, the topic, Have a Little Patience. Listener Sina has sent us a note. Best wishes, she writes, for a very happy birthday number 14. Going out to my granddaughter, Chaya Schreiber of Bayswater. Chaya, I'm so proud of all you've accomplished, and I know that it's going to continue. I'll be watching and waiting for the next great thing because I know it's just around the corner. I'm so glad I'll be able to celebrate your birthday with you in person. I love you tons. To the moon and back and then some, and hope you have a great day. With much love from Bubs who we know, of course, as listener Cena from down in the Sunshine State, but rumor has it that she's been spotted in the New York, New Jersey area over the last few days. I'll tell you, you just don't know with listener Cena where she's going to turn up. Uh, so full schedule uh, in what we will call our regular three weeks format throughout the day today uh, here at the Nahum Siegel Network, including the live lunch that will be presented by uh, Yossi Zweig. Uh, tomorrow is Thursday, uh, more of Rabbi Wine's lectures and um, some of our great Thursday programming during the day. And then Friday, as we said, will include the weekly update in our Friday morning JM in the AM. Plus, uh, at some point during our Friday broadcast, we'll air my father's uh, eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which we do traditionally on the 3rd of uh, Menachem Av, which was the day it was delivered on the Shloshim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, as I'll be coming up on Friday. Next week on Thursday is Tisha B'Av, and we are anticipating having a Tisha B'Av Kinnis service on the air, which has been something very important to us and to many, many listeners who are not able to make it to shul on Tisha B'Av morning or find it too difficult to do so with the fast and the heat, etc. So I'll have that for you, please, God, next Thursday morning right here at JM in the AM. Um trying to think. Oh, yeah, Sunday uh, at the uh, Congregation Keter Torah in Teaneck, New Jersey. Rabbi Moshe Osman, the chief rabbi of Ukraine, who joined us earlier in the show. Uh, he's going to be uh, speaking at 1015, followed by a Q&A this coming Sunday. That's at the 600 Romer Avenue in Teaneck, New Jersey at Congregation Keter Torah. So keep that in mind. And again, that's happening a Sunday at 1015. Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Our listeners sponsor digital radio. Around the world, the web, and AlchemSigl.com, and the Siegel Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. And that'll do it for this Wednesday morning, Rosh Chodesh morning at JM in the AM. Uh, let's uh, pay more and more attention to uh, doing good things during these nine days for people who are in need and for people in general. It is one way to uh, increase peace and harmony in the Jewish community. Have a fabulous Wednesday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember to past, live the present, and trust the future.